Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Hi, everybody. Uh, uh, welcome from the uh, still uh, frigid upper Midwest. Boy, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, today is January 20th, one year from today. On the steps of the Capitol in Washington, we will either inaugurate a new era in our democracy or we will ratify its demise. Too bad the political press isn't interested in that story. I mean, really, hours of airtime. Barrels Inc. later, last week's political coverage amounted to no news at all. As a reminder, Republicans think they have an incumbent president. So there's really no primary on their side, just as there's no real challenger to Joe Biden. The free coverage given to the wing nuts by the media in Iowa is, if I am charitable, a habit left over from normal times. If I am, and I want to be with you, more honest than charitable. It's just self-serving clickbait. So look, instead of talking about this week's political news, let's spend our time at the top of the show talking about more important, more interesting topics. Two weeks ago here on this show, I asked the journalist A.B. Stoddard whether any Republicans would have the courage to stand with Joe Biden and the democracy in the general election. And she said she thought there would be a few. Then I asked her if she thought American business leaders would stand up for our democracy as well. She couldn't think of any who might. This week, on cue at the gathering of the rich and mighty at Davos in the Swiss Alps, the great men opined that Donald Trump would be the next president and that everything will be fine. Boy, the atmosphere in the Alps must be very thin. I mean, Jamie Dimon is a great banker. Steve Schwartzman is a superb investor. Don't take anything away from these guys in their fields. But look, guys like them, they're they're great at making money, but that doesn't make them deep thinkers about our democracy or our politics. In fact, in fact, their success depends on their ability to privatize gains and socialize losses. If money is to be made, they want to keep it. If money's being lost, they want taxpayers to bail them out. So when they say things will be fine if Donald Trump is elected, they don't mean things will be fine for you or fine for me. They mean their companies will be protected, maybe even advantaged. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich, um, great guy, he recently wrote that these are the same guys who spent their last four years, and I'm quoting him, fighting unions, suppressing wages, monopolizing their markets, and price gouging customers, and spinning off almost all gains to shareholders. Yep. Look, these are also the guys who've been funneling campaign cash to the election deniers after initially promising Americans they would never do that again. It is important, and Democrats better remember this, it's important that American business remains strong and healthy. But look, it's equally important that American business operates within a system where ordinary Americans benefit from the enormous economic growth our society produces. 
The bigs up in the mountains, they need a reminder that their companies rely on workers educated in our schools. They move products on roads we build. They jet around in airspace we keep safe. Their basic research is paid for by grants to our great universities. They settle their disputes in courts we pay for. Look, citizenship isn't such a complicated idea, and I'm confident that with a little work, even the folks in Davos can understand it. Confident, but not counting on it. All right, then there's Texas. Earlier, I told you about Governor Abbott's outrageous move to use the Texas National Guard to keep the U.S. Border Patrol uh, away from the U.S. border. We talked about that last week. Since then, this past week, Governor Abbott used his troops to prevent the Border Patrol from saving a family who was caught in the current, um, and they drowned in the Rio Grande. Look, if he'd allowed the Border Patrol to save them, they would have been apprehended. But that's not the Texas way. Abbott just wants to shoot migrants at the border. He even complained that the Biden administration wouldn't turn a blind eye if they did. Shocking, right? And then the state's Texas's attorney general, the impeached and uh, uh, indicted Ken Paxton. That thug then went on in a in a letter to the courts to say that the Border Patrol isn't really allowed access to the border unless and only if they're capturing migrants. That is their job to capture migrants. And he claims officially the policy of the state of Texas, that the Biden administration isn't actually capturing migrants, so they aren't allowed near the border. He writes that the Biden administration's border is open, like Fox News. Look, Paxton can write this kind of political nonsense, this fiction, um, because of the media's failure to report on reality. Here's the real world. In fiscal year 2023, the Biden administration caught and denied admission or expelled more than 2 million people at border stations and another 600,000 encountered in the wilderness between them. That's what patrolling the border is, Ken. You know, as a thought experiment, only as a thought experiment, be kind of fun if Joe Biden stood up one day and said, you know, you Republicans, you think there's an open border? You know what? I'm going to open the border for three days. See how you like it. Texas would have 300,000 new uh, migrants in three days. And you know what? They'd be utter chaos. But we don't do that. They're lying when they say, oh, Democrats don't care. The border's open. We're trying to get a deal. In fact, we learned another two things related to immigration this past week. First, in a leaked memo among House Republicans, we learned that they have a timetable for impeaching Homeland Security Mayorkas over the border, even though they haven't taken his testimony. Guilty before even before they even get the evidence. Right. Nonsense. Second, House Speaker Johnson has told us that he's in regular communications with Donald Trump to strategize how to avoid passing what's expected to be a strong immigration reform bill coming from the Senate. Bipartisan bill. Look, Paxton's deadly lies, the GOP's fake impeachment and the transparent effort to keep immigration as a top problem rather than to fix it, make this clear, abundantly clear. Today's Republicans do not care a bit about making America great. Not again, not ever. They only care about taking and keeping power. 
Well, so much for, you know, uh, the business tycoons and today's Republicans. You won't hear this stuff on the news. You're going to hear about the beauty contest to be Donald Trump's vice president pick. Yeah, just revolting. Look, you, you, you know what else you won't hear on the news? You won't hear the examples, the thousands of, of good, hardworking government workers doing their job. For example, just this week, President Biden announced that as part of the American Rescue Plan and of the Infrastructure Act, North Carolina is getting investments that will provide high-speed internet to every business and household in the state, along with support that will reduce internet bills for families. Planning these investments, carrying them out, this is the work of people in government, right? These kinds of investments are being planned and executed all over the country. Apparently not news when we can talk about the beauty contests, right? Or the poll one or the fake primaries. Look, you know what else you won't hear about? And there's another story, really important one. Um, the national security leaders of the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. Remember, Japan and South Korea have a tortured history. They met in Camp David this week, um, in part to celebrate a new partnership between the University of Chicago, Seoul National University, and the University of Tokyo to train a future quantum workforce. This is a partnership aimed at extending our leadership in critical technologies well into the future. It is a collaboration that will strengthen the collective competitiveness of our democracies and our security. By the way, not incidentally, it will provide cutting edge tech and talent for those folks drinking too much of the Kool-Aid from Crystal Goblets in Davos. We won't be hearing much about these things in the political media. And the wealthiest amongst us, the most powerful, they just think they're safe. So once again, my friends, when it comes to saving the democracy, we are on our own. But here's the thing, right? Everyone who has ever underestimated that extraordinary we, the American people, has ended up in the ash bin. One year, let's get to work. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, um, fabulous Will Bunch is joining me. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. And once again, I'm thrilled to be joined by Will Bunch, the Philadelphia Inquirer's national columnist. He is, as you know, always thoughtful. Um, but <laughs> lately, he's been on fire with must-read columns about Iowa and, you know, the Trump evangelists and the Supreme Court and, you know, about the link between despair and political collapse. Just great reads. Will, welcome back and Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you, too, Edwin. Thanks for having me back. Um, uh, where do I want to start? We have an election where both parties have the nominating dynamic um, that they would have when an incumbent is running for a second term. I mean, President Biden right. is actually the incumbent seeking a second term. But for Republicans, Donald Trump is their incumbent. And I don't want to spend too much time on how nuts that is. I'm raising it because of what it means for the primaries. Primaries with incumbent presidents are boring. The outcome is all but certain. So I just want to get your take on why the endless attention to the GOP sideshow that's pretending that they actually have a competitive primary. I mean, is it just so much easier for reporters to go to Iowa to talk about the weather than to cover the real work of government or the accomplishments of the administration? Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, I've written about this 
or I've alluded to it at least in a couple of my columns. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, over 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 the course of my lifetime, I've you know I've seen the growth of the um, what would you call it the election coverage complex. You know, like the military industrial complex. I mean, um, you know, every, every year um, the TV news networks um, invest more and more on election coverage, political coverage, and you know, a, a lot of years that's that's paid off for them, right? Because, you know, um, most, most times there's some excitement around a a primary, at least in one of the parties and, and you'll see a surge in ratings, but, um, you know, I mean, what we saw in Iowa and what we're seeing now with Republicans is just a dead soulless affair. You know, it's just this, and I think I, I forget exactly when, but at some point late last year, I wrote a column um, that basically said the, the real problem is, you know, we have this whole infrastructure geared to cover political parties, and this isn't a political party anymore. It's, it's really become a cult. You know, it's like, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a primary to, you know, who was gonna who was gonna head you know Mussolini's party or just you know insert the name of any authoritarian you want. You know, but once 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 something becomes a movement like that. And once it becomes beholden to the leader, you're, you're just not going to have a primary that makes sense, uh, right? I mean, I, they they have their incumbent. I mean, honestly, you know, yeah. I, I always want to ask them, how can Donald Trump run for a third term since you think he's president now? <laughs> but right, but <laughs> right. So, so they they got yeah. him. They're going to re- nominate him, and and. And the spectacle and the money spent on debates and debate stages and all these highly paid TV anchors and showing up and doing this nonsense and and month after month after month, not telling us about what the government is doing or what Joe Biden is doing. I mean, I've never in my life. I, I don't know if there's ever been an incumbent president who gets less news coverage than the guy he beat. Right. And it, and it just shows how much they're guided by entertainment values. You know, Joe, Joe Biden did not run for president to uh, to entertain us. Right. You know, he, he ran he ran for president. He ran for president to, to govern, you know, and what, what, what I find frustrating, though, is. It's not that there's not a story going on in this country right now. I mean, I mean, to the contrary. Right. I mean, this. This could be the biggest story of our lifetimes if, you know, American democracy really falters to the extent that it could falter, you know, over the next year. Um, But the way they're they're not, you know, they don't want to tell that story. You know, that means going out. I I mean, my my style of political coverage has never been about access to, like, candidates or consultants. And, you know, not that I never talk to those people, but... To me, the political coverage that matters is talking to voters and trying to understand what everyday people are thinking. And what what bigger challenge than the challenge in 2024? Because we're trying to figure out what people are thinking when either a large majority or maybe even a tiny minority of the electorate wants to install somebody who's openly talking about becoming a dictator. You know, what... What has motivated people to get behind something like this? 
you know, and, and we're seeing some of it, but we, we don't we don't see nearly enough focus on that instead of all the time that's been wasted on on Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. You know, it's just yeah, and and, and you've just raised a really um, complicated question for journalists, and it's much. It shouldn't be complicated, but um, old habits are making it hard to do well. So there were a bunch of stories in this in, in, in Iowa where reporters who really are living in an ivory tower show up and try and interview, you know, regular, ordinary Iowans. I go to a diner. Right? I'm sick of these diner stories. Right? Yeah, and they right. get like a couple sound bites to try and. Like say, oh, aren't we all like Democrats? We're all D, small D Democrats. We're all in this together. Tell me what you think. And then they, you know, they hear something crazy or, or not or whatever they hear. But that yeah. isn't how you do the kind of reporting you're just talking about. No, it's not. And, and also, I mean, you know, we, we live in a, we live in a society now. You know, three three years after COVID and with all our technology, you know, people aren't even going to diners, right? Uh, most people, most people are on their couch, they're surfing the web, and they're reading these crazy conspiracy theories, you know, like QAnon or, or mm-hmm. you know, you know, like 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 Joe Biden didn't, didn't win the 2020 election, which is believed by a majority of Republican voters. Right. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think. Th- yeah, I think there's I think you're right. I think there's a, I think there's a, refu- a refusal to accept. How far gone some of these people? How far? How far down a rabbit hole some of these people have gone? Right. So, um, and and yet, you know, it's the story. It's the story of our time. So, um, you know, I I don't know. I don't. I you know. I don't think. I think. I think the big networks are too invested in doing it their way to really change their ways. I mean, yeah. you're 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 going to find individual journalists out there who are doing it. You know, who are going to going to rallies and talking to people and, and really conveying what's happening out there. But you have to look for them because they're not going to just you're not going to flip on yeah. your TV and see that. Yeah, the information's out there if you do the work to find it for sure. But yeah, right. yeah, yeah. The, the, what's what's being pushed at people. Is dangerous, and I, you know, I, before you got on, I began the show by reminding everybody: today, Will is January twentieth, a year from today. Yeah. On the steps of the Capitol, we're either inaugurating a new era for our democracy or ratifying its demise. I, I, you know, I'd be nice if the press were really interested in that question. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw one. I saw one tweet this morning that alluded to the uh, fact that we're one year out from this. You know, and. Um, yeah, I, I think you know. I mean, I mean, that's what happens in election years is things have a way to, a way of sneaking up on you. I mean, we're, we're going to be we're going to be trying to make sense of, of Milwaukee and the GOP convention sooner than sooner than we realize, and then we'll be in this mad sprint to the finish line in, in the fall. And uh, you know, there's so many question marks. So. Um. I, I'm a little scattershot in what I want to talk to you about. There was one story, again, the stories are out there and you can find them if you want. They're not sort of pushed on us, but you found it and you wrote about it. This week, the guys who really don't care about our democracy, um, I think, revealed their hand a little bit um, when uh, all over right wing media, there's this obsession that somehow diversity initiatives are responsible oh, yeah. for, you know, for the uh, uh, P-51 
piece of window, the door that blew out of a plane in the middle of the air. Right. They're sort of blaming diversity on, on yeah. a, a, the yeah, door so, panel so. in the Boeing jet. Talk about that. First, remind people of the story because it didn't get the coverage it should. And then talk about that. Yeah. So, so that was my my most recent column that I just published online Thursday um, was called, uh, uh, quote, a black guy, unquote, uh, didn't cause uh, the, the midair blowout on, on a Boeing jet. Uh, capitalism did, you know, and the point I was trying to make, well, first of all, I think most listeners are probably familiar with it happened about 10 days, two weeks ago uh, in Alaska Airlines uh, jetliner took off from Portland. And not long after takeoff, they had this horrifying incident where this, this door panel in, on the side of the fuselage just blew off the plane at 14,000 feet. And it's, it's a miracle that no people were sucked out of the hole in this plane. And uh, the pilots, who, who, by the way, one, if not both of whom, was a woman, which is I wouldn't necessarily mention, except for the fact that, as you alluded to, you know, people making complaints about diversity and equity, and and the hero in this story, you know, is, is a female co-pilot, right? You know, but anyway, so, um, you know, so people are people are more concerned about airline safety. There there have been a few near misses on 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 some runways, and and um, you know, uh, even though. <clears throat> Amazingly, there's been no uh, domestic uh, commercial airliner fatality in the United States in the last 15 years. But, but uh, you know, there were those two overseas crashes involving these Boeing 737 jets. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, these people on the right, and I mean both the regular Yahoos, and I also mean, you know, these, these billionaire bro dudes, like starting with Elon Musk and, and his, his friends, started having this online conversation about, oh, the problems in the airline industry. It's no coincidence that this happened when many of the airlines and when companies like Boeing embraced DEI, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and inclusion as a, as a formal program, right? And the implication, and, and one of them even did this, like, eugenics type rant, I, you know, I thought I was reading something from the 1920s or something, but, you know, one of these posters that Elon Musk liked and responded to this post, uh, you know, claiming that um, black pilots who come from HBCUs uh, have lower SAT scores and must have lower IQs than, like, pilots that they get from the Air Force and, like, just, just flat-out racist stuff. And... um yeah, and and Elon Musk has been on this rant that DEI is causing, you know, quality control problems at Boeing and in the aviation industry, and there's there's just zero evidence for that. And, and in fact, there's been a, there's been a lot of um, there's been a lot of good writing in the last couple of years, including a book by um, I think it's Jeff Jeff Gellis from the New York Times wrote a book about. Um, GE's uh, the late Jack Welch and his protégés actually were the people who've been running Boeing for the last 20 years and they're they're you know quarterly profit driven uh, build shareholder value at the expense of everything else mentality is much more to blame for any safety problems at Boeing than the fact that their workforce is maybe slightly more diverse than it used to be, but um, right. the you know, companies become, based where their engineers are, 
in in Washington, and then it was based in Chicago where the finance guys were, and now it's based in D.C. where the lobbyists are. This is their priority. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you go back to the 20th century, you know, Boeing had like a really good reputation as an engineering-oriented company, and the people who rose to the top ranks of Boeing were were engineers, or and you know, people trained as engineers, and now they're people trained in finance, and you know, that's the, that's the big switch. But meanwhile, I mean, I mean, you're really seeing dramatically, I think, in the last month or two, how DEI. Is, is you know it's like a di- it's like a different it's got a different name every year right last year it was critical race theory CRT. or CRT yeah. and and now now that got kind of old so now now you know now it's uh, now it's DEI and basically anything that goes wrong in society is because too many jobs are going to black people or brown people or women you know and um, it's it's really it's really sickening. And you, you have to, but you have to call it out for what it is. You know, you can't just like say it's sickening. You have to say, look, here's the real reason Boeing has. You know, Boeing does have some problems. Uh, you know, I don't think that you, you can deny that at this point. But here's here's the culture at the company and and how it went wrong. And it has nothing to do with how diverse their workforce is. You know, right? I mean, so that, it's I mean, two separate yeah, I mean, it's stories. It's it's the yeah. story of sort of modern capitalism's. Uh, uh, quality problem, um, and you talk about that, and it's the story of the di- just disgusting use, uh, 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 elevation of racism um, in the right wing in America. Yeah, and you and know, and, and the, people... the blood purity that Trump talks about. Yeah, and, and also the people promoting these lies. Uh, you know, like Elon Musk, for example, who you know is <clears throat> is a is a big time. Excuse me, is a big time modern industrialist. I mean, you know, he owns an auto, automobile company, Tesla, which has With a lot his own of quality diversity control problems. Yeah, yeah, control. It has quality control problems. It also has. <laughs> problems with being racist, right? They've had, they've had been, they've been digging for that as well. And so they, they're killing two birds with one stone, right? I mean, they're shifting the conversation away from what's gone wrong, you know, and I'm not, I'm not totally indicting capitalism, but you know, there's a certain kind of late stage, you know, all profit, no, no other stakeholder minded capitalism that drastically needs to be reformed. I mean, these people, I mean, they're anti-union, right? They're they're whatever. And they realize that they can, like, shoot down these arguments and also make political points by making it about race instead, you know, even though race really has nothing to do with it. Yeah, I just don't think a political campaign this year in the United States that is so brazenly about are we a racist, you know, is it we should be a racist country or maybe we shouldn't? I just don't think the ones who are raising their hands and saying we should go back to being a racist nation, fully embracing that, um, are they, I just don't think they're going to win. But it's their strategy for sure. And it's rallied a base um, that's much larger yeah, it, than I thought existed. Yeah, it's definitely appealing to tens of millions of people. And it's it's definitely, you know, going back to how this whole conversation started, we were talking about Trump and his rallies. I mean, it's definitely something that motivates the people who show up at these things much more than 
you know, much more than the supposed economic anxiety that they're feeling. You know, I mean, it's complicated. There is, I'm not saying there's no such thing as economic anxiety. I mean, I mean, the, the downsizing of manufacturing in the American heartland is a thing. It did happen. But, um, you know, they've been trained to turn their focus on the wrong enemies, right? You know, instead of blaming the people, instead of blaming the CEOs who took away their jobs, they, you know, they punch down, they blame it on the people below them. And they, it, it must be, it must be because, you know, there's too much emphasis on hiring black and brown people and women. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you're right. It's a, it's a ploy. And I wish some people wouldn't fall for it because it's so ugly and so false. Speaking of um, yeah. not liking people of color, um, you and I both thought that when Texas Governor Abbott moved the National Guard to prevent the U.S. Border Patrol from accessing the U.S. border, it reminded both of us of Fort Sumter. Um, yeah. Yeah, a couple other folks you know made Again, the same analogy, yeah. You, right? We, the, this is not, this story is not as big a story as, like, the weather in Iowa. <laughs> and I don't know why, because it's an enormously important story that captures something really ugly and dangerous. Yeah. And, and to me, it's, 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 you know, the biggest, it's the biggest battle of, you know, state states rights to use that controversial term. You know, it's the biggest battle of state rights versus federal authority really since, since the 1960s, you know, when you, when you saw mm -hmm. uh, in the fifties and sixties, really, when you saw massive resistance to school integration, you know, is really the last time that you had state, authorities like a governor like Greg Abbott in Texas defying the federal government, you know, and, and now, you know, now they're now they're arresting um, uh, undocumented migrants and they're, and they're locking them up, you know, um, and um, or letting them, uh, you know, and they're the yeah. yeah, or letting them brown. Yeah, I mean, they're militaristic, you know, I mean, I mean, this has been this has been a long time coming, you know, first. Uh, you know, first they they strung this like barbed wire and these barrels across the Rio Grande, which they're which they're actually not allowed to do um, by treaty, right? Uh, yeah, you know, and, and these poor these poor women and kids were getting their legs sliced open on this bar on this uh, uh, concertina wire, I guess it's called not barbed wire, but mm -hmm. um, ra razor razor wire, I think some people call it. Um, and, uh, you know, and then you had this situation last week uh, or a week and a half ago where uh, they stopped, they started barring, the, uh, blocking the Border Patrol from going on the main area. Well, you know, it's a state park, I guess, is, the, is part of the issue going into the state park where they can get the access they need to do their job, which is to, you know, oversee immigration and deal with you know, deal with undocumented migration. Um, and uh, they've passed this law in defiance of the federal government that, has, you know, has made um, undocumented immigration a state crime now, you know. And at some point, something's got to give, just just like at Fort Sumter, right? It's not, maybe it's not quite the same, but it's the same, it's basically the same principle. I, I, um, I also just don't think that there's a that, that they want a solution. Um, you know, this week we learned. Well, well that, not between uh, now and November. Yeah. 
Yeah, they don't. They want to keep it an issue. They, they they will. They would rather have it be. But you know, they they claim and and Paxton, their their attorney general, claimed this in writing um, to as his response to court filings because of what's going on there at Eagle Pass that 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 the the Biden administration is not interested in. Um, uh, apprehending anyone at the border. They, they, they parrot the Republican lie that the border is open, um, notwithstanding the numbers of people who are apprehended, sent back every day. I mean, there's no question. Migration is a huge issue, and lots of people are showing up. Also, lots of people are getting caught and sent back. Almost all of them, in fact, are getting caught, um, and there's a backlog here in courts and everything else. Um but I will. This is just me thinking. What if the shoe were on the other foot? What if Illinois were on the border and the Republicans were in charge? And Illinois, the governor of Illinois said, "Oh, the Republican president just believes in an open border," and it was a lie. You know what the president would do? The Republican president, he would open the border for real, and the state would be awash with three hundred thousand migrants in about two days. And he'd say, "So that's what a real open border is." And I, boy, yeah. it's a tempting thing to want to do, isn't it? Just to say, you want to, you think the border is open? We'll show you what an open border is. Well, you know, you, I mean, you could, you could, you could see the shoe on the other foot if Trump is elected and becomes president one one year from today. Um, you know, because uh, uh, this is somewhat related to immigration and somewhat related to what they claim is happening with crime and some other issues. But, um, I mean, you know that they've talked about sending federal troops into cities like Chicago. And, and uh, you know, in fact, Chicago seems to be the first one they mention a lot of the time. But um, Or, um, you know, or, 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 or other cities, uh, you know, in addition to sending out troops to put down protests and, and uh, you know, so so – so you could have a president one year from today who um, is very eager to use to use federal authority uh, and override local local governments. Um, so, well, so it is, it is an issue. I mean, you know, it, it, and it is it it is in a lot of ways it's like that Civil War era 150 years ago. You know, when there there are real questions about what's you know. What's the federal authority? What's the local state authority? Yep. You know, um, and our, we're still our friends that in the out. Supreme Court, our friends in the Supreme Court, who have a lot to say about what the law is, um, uh, have have um, quite uh, consistently said the state is the states have more authority than you think. Right. Um, but now they're yeah. going to get a 14th Amendment case where Colorado says, OK, well, we've read the Constitution and Donald Trump's not eligible to be on our ballot. Th- this is where their uh, strict construction and states rights bias is going to run into their political agenda. Yeah, How do exactly. You think and, and, and we and, and we've seen it before. Right. We saw it in 2000 when uh, uh, within Bush versus Gore, when they disregarded everything they'd ever said in the past uh, to make sure that, that Bush won that election. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think they're going to do whatever they can to find a way to keep Trump on the ballot, you know. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I have such mixed feelings about this. I mean, you know, do, do, do I have any doubt that 
January 6th was, was an insurrection and that Trump was involved in it and that the language of the 14th Amendment is clear about people who were involved in insurrections. Uh, yes, I, I believe all those things. I, I, I do think, I, you know, but all, you know, my, a lot of my focus this year has been let's not focus on how we beat Trump ideally. Let's focus on how we beat him practically, right? You know, and I think, I think practically, Throwing Trump off the ballot is, is a recipe for an actual civil war, you know. Uh, and and I think more important, more important, more importantly than that, though, I think, you know, I think the curse of Trumpism. I think America and the world has to see that it's not supported by a majority of people. And the, and the only way so, to, in, in, in this country, and the only way to do that is yeah, at the ballot box. It's a, it's a huge. So I, I agree with you on the. Um, uh, uh, that it's better politics and it's better for the soul of the nation to uh, just resoundingly vote against him all over the country. Yeah, I'm not sure that that Absolutely. doesn't lead to insurrection. It led to insurrection last time. And I yeah. um, and I just want to challenge the part of you where you said I think it might lead to an actual civil war. Look. The Constitution has a lot of things in it that are unpleasant for democracy. And the Electoral College is certainly one. We voted yeah. for Hillary Clinton. She didn't get to be president. Um, you know, we voted for Al Gore. He didn't get to be president. That doesn't mean that it's not a civil war. The rest of us abide by the rules. Now, you're saying, well, you know what? If the Constitution, if the rules kick Donald Trump off, we'll have a civil war. Well, you know what? Those guys don't get to say they're when the Constitution's inconvenient for them, they're right. going to cause a war. And we are the law abiding ones. I, I just think, you know, we've been we've lost our, the presidency a bunch because of the Constitution. And that doesn't, you know, we say, okay, there's a legal way to deal with this. There's a law abiding way. And we're going to, we're going to put that rule of law ahead of our own feelings here. The idea that you can credibly say, and I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. You credibly are saying that we might have a civil war if the constitution applies to the other guys, anything like it's applied to us time and time again. That's a terrible thought. I know. I know. Well, here's what, here's what I think is going to happen. In the real world, which is it's it's both bad and it's good in a way, is you know I, I absolutely think that John Roberts is scrambling right now to put together a majority and 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 to try and get one of the one of the three liberal Democrat appointed justices to to sign on to you know to a decision that'll somehow keep Trump on the ballot and and which is bad right but but. Think about 2022 and how much voter anger at the Supreme Court over, you know, over the Dobbs case, over over overturning Roe versus Wade. I mean, that turned out to be a huge plus for Democrats at the ballot box. And I think yeah, still I think that would I think I think I think that would I think I think the same thing, like especially I mean, imagine if Clarence Thomas, you know, whose wife was up to her eyeballs and January 6th type stuff. Uh, what if he doesn't recuse himself from a decision that keeps Trump on the ballot? You know, I, I, and you know, there's no there's no way to impeach Thomas with a with a Republican majority right now in the House. Um, I, I think that'll be such a rallying cry for voters, and, and you know, it's, it's a shame that it has to be that way. Like you said, it'd be better if we just played by the rules rather than that. But 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 I do think. You know, in trying to predict how this is going to play out 
in, in reality, I think I think you'll see a bad ruling, and I think it'll remind a majority of Americans of the things that are wrong with this country right now, which include not just Trump, but also the Supreme Court. And I think it'll get people very energized about being pro-democracy in November. I mean, maybe I'm being a little naive about that, but I no. think— Once again, you know, I think you're and, absolutely and, and, right. And, and, and I think— and I and I think that could change the dynamic because you know right now, I mean right now there's just too much kind of I don't think it's really apathy but I do think it's like maybe despair. I was going to ask you among, about that. I was going to ask you about your end yeah. of year column, um, which you know you published right at the end of last year about that yeah. very issue. Yeah. Talk about that. It was a great column. Yeah, I mean um, one thing one thing I think people don't understand about authoritarianism. Um, I mean, I mean, yeah, there is, there is among a core group, there is this enthusiasm, right. That we see at these Trump rallies, but you know, that, I mean, 20,000 people showing up at a Trump rally, you know, and, and a lot of, a lot of these people travel from rally to rally. Right. So, so, uh, you know, 10,000 of them are probably just, you know, like the right. deadheads of the Trump movement, yeah. right? Yeah, right. You know, whatever. Yeah. So, 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 so. Anyway, my point being, you know, um, so, so there is there is that small uh, bubble of enthusiasm, but but really, if you look through history and, and you look through the history of um, autocracy, um, it, it's really more despair and people just being convinced that nothing matters politically, you know, is, is the best environment for, um, authoritarians to thrive. And, you know, and I think, I think, unfortunately, you know, we're seeing a lot of success from Trump up in, in that regard, you know, um, you know, I mean, you're seeing, you're seeing a lot of despair, especially, especially among types of people who could make a difference in this election. So, you know, and, and I'm not the only person out there talking about this, but, um, you know, it, it's it's unfortunate. But like, I, I mean, Biden and Biden's reelection in and of itself isn't isn't the kind of thing that's going to get people marching through the streets. You know, you need we need more somehow, you know, the, the defense of democracy needs that kind of effort. And I think I think just hoping against hope that everybody's going to show up on November 5th. Um, it could be too late. It was too late in 2016, you know, and uh, and so, but yeah, I, in my column, I called for people to start thinking now about how to get more involved. And the, and the best thing is you don't even really have to join a group. It's just everybody knows people in their life who were on the fence, maybe not, not, not on the fence about Trump versus Biden necessarily, but just on the fence in terms of getting involved at all. You know, um, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, certainly this might be a bit of a cliche, but certainly, you know, young people are a special concern because they historically have lower turnout rates and young voters are very disillusioned right now for a bunch of reasons. You know, Gaza is the biggest one at the moment, but there's other reasons as well. And, um, you know, I think, I think hectoring and yelling at, you know, kids today is, is, is not going to work, but I do think, um, you know, if you start lobbying them now and start getting to come around and see that, um, you know, if, if, if we if we elect Trump, we may not have a country, you know, four years from now. But if you elect Biden, 
sure there are problems, but Biden, one thing, one thing, one thing about Biden that's always impressed me is he, is he listens. You know, he does listen to people, yeah, um, unlike some, unlike, unlike some other politicians. And you'll, you'll have a democracy and you'll be able to work towards, you know, electing local candidates in 26 and electing, uh, you know, there, you know, uh, no matter who wins, there would be a new president in, in 2028, right? So, uh, you know, you can work for those things, but you're not going to be able you're not going to be able to work for those things if Trump wins, you know, or not in the same way. So, yeah, and, and you, you got you got you to start having those conversations, you know. Yep, and and um, I want to add to your list: abortion, climate change, yeah, sensible gun right. laws. Um, all of these things matter a lot to young people. And there's just no question about the difference between the candidates on those issues. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Biden, <laughs> Biden hasn't done everything uh, that, that a very pro-climate oriented voter would want to see done. But, I mean, he's done more than any other president. And the more, the more important thing is um, Trump and, and the people working to elect Trump have a blueprint to undo any kind of climate progress that's occurred and, you know, to hand to hand the, the keys to the country back to big oil, you know, if you like that, and it's just, there, there, there's just, there's just no choice on, on that issue. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's why I raise it. Because and, and, and the other ones, and the other ones you mentioned, abortion and, and yeah. gun rights, you know, there's, they're just, there's no comparison. The conversation we issues. have with young people, they, they, they just, there are things they care a lot about. I care about, they should care about um, where the choice is so clear. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's not just—it's not just yeah, it's not just young people, but right. it, you know, there's 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 other people who are just disillusioned. There's, there, I'm sure there's there's some old hippies out there who are disillusioned too, you know. So, uh, so, but right. we don't hear these things, these issues that you and I just raised. That's not the substance of what political reporters are writing about. They're writing about you know. The, the audition lunches at Mar-a-Lago, the audition dinners for who's going to like, oh, did Tim Scott, you know, praise Trump enough to be on his list? That is what passes for political news. And you and I are talking about things that are like light years more important than that. And thank God they're, you know, like you have a column and I can speak, you know, people can hear it without paying for it. These these radio shows. But that's not what most people are hearing. And it's very frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have a, I have a thought or a guess on who Trump might pick to be vice president. But you know what? I haven't written a column about it, and I, I'm not really planning to because there's and too, I'm not much even more, ask. There's too much other. <laughs> yeah. Right, I, I know, and I'm not, yeah. gonna, and I'm not going to tell you. So, uh, yeah. you know, listeners, listeners can email me, uh, you know, at, at wbunchatinquire.com, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell, I'll, I'll give them my prediction for who's. He's going to be Trump's vice president, but I'm not going to write a column about it. I mean, I mean, um, uh, you know, I mean, my next column is going to be about um, these corporate honchos. You know, I guess I'm back on the back on the capitalism beat, but about these corporate honchos like Jamie Dimon. Oh, I was going to uh, ask you about Davos. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to write. I'm going to write. I'm, I'm actually, actually, when I hang up this phone, I'm going to start writing because uh, uh, I have some things tomorrow. I also want to finish the day early, but uh, I'm going to start writing right. my my next column uh, in about ten minutes. Um, yeah, and, the air must uh, be very thin up there this year. 
<laughs> well, you know, you know, I mean, uh, you know, these, these like captains of industry, I mean, they have a history of making predictions at Davos that are 100 percent wrong. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean, last year, last year, the consensus at Davos was that we would be in a recession right now. And uh, we're funny we're how all their predictions are, you know, pro-Republican. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, so you it's probably should be, in the crystal goblets up there. Yeah. But 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 I do want to look at the history though of there's a long history of, of corporations and corporate CEOs being okay with fascism, you know. Um, sure is that, that they like that they like the stability and and uh, you know it's they think it's probably good for the bottom line and you know this guy Biden seems a little pro union and we're a little suspicious of him and um, so they're. They're fine with this, you know, insurrectionist, you know, this uh, judge-certified rapist, uh, you know, and everything else that's wrong with Trump. Uh, uh, None of that bothers them as long as they 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 can get the stability, low taxes, whatever they whatever they think they need. Yeah, and and get rid of all the environmental uh, protections, yeah. So they can dump their stuff wherever they want or drill, baby, drill. Yeah, so it's 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 appalling, but but like but like you and I were just saying, I mean, the one thing we can one thing we can be happy about is they they have an almost one hundred percent track record of being wrong. So the fact the fact that they all seem convinced at Davos this year that Trump is going to win the election is is probably probably the best news Biden's gotten in a while, right? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, again, you just the things that the administration is doing, I'm very impressed. You know, what has to agree with all of the things they do. Yeah, the presidency right. is a hard job after all. Um, but I, I just, you know, you, you look at like the American, the, the Infrastructure Act passed, you know, in the last Congress and Democrats got it done with some help from Republicans. But they got it done. But you, these things don't execute themselves. They require talent and hardworking people in the government to work with states, to come up with the plans, to spend the money properly. And you're seeing it now in like rolled out in North Carolina, however, but it's going to, you know, there's an actual plan to get broadband to the whole state. That's just, you know, people, I don't know what we take for granted. The stuff doesn't fall out of heaven. It's human beings doing the work. And the ones who are doing it aren't getting any of the credit for it. Right. And um, it, it, it's crazy. We've got we've got a guy, McCormick, who's running again for the Senate as a Republican here in Pennsylvania, who was out there yesterday saying he he's he's still attacking the uh, infrastructure bill. You know, he, he'd like to undo it, you know, which is just, just insane. You know, at, at least at, at, at least at least a bunch of his fellow Republicans are trying to take credit for the stuff they voted against, you know, because they know. Yeah. Because they know how pop because they know how popular these programs are in their districts, you know. So, so, so now that they're here, they're going to jump on board, you know. And, and uh, um, yeah, a, 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 absolutely, you know, uh, you know, infrastructure chips, the climate stuff we were just talking about, yep. uh, and, and, and he had to get Republican votes to get all of those things passed, you know. And uh, it's it's really quite an achievement. So. Yeah, it sure is. All right. Well, speaking of things that are that don't go your way, I guess I do want to say as a Bears fan, I have some sympathy for what <laughs> happened, what happened to the Eagles. Um, 
Well, um, yeah, every, everybody still remembers the double doings, right? So, uh, yeah. Uh, what was that? What was that about a decade ago, or maybe it's even longer mm-hmm. than that? But uh, yeah, no, it wasn't. It was actually less than that. It was like five or six years ago. But, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, well, I mean, the the Eagles were a team that managed to make most. You know, it, it, they were they were the opposite of America's team. They made they made most of America turn against them. So, but yeah, there was there was a lot of shade and Freud when they. Uh, when they collapsed, and and uh, we'll see. You know, we you know Philly's we've, got we've great been able to enjoy fans like Chicago. You know, I, so I, I absolutely. You know, I mean, I mean, I, you know, I I hate to stereotype, but they're both they're both blue collar cities, right? They're both hardworking cities, yep. and, and and the people take their sports seriously. You know, and and you go somewhere like L.A. and and the vibe is just totally different. It's just not it, it it's hard to explain, but it's just a uh, there's something special in a, in a handful of cities, and I, yeah, I think Chicago and, and Philly are two of the best. Two of the best. I agree so with that. We can, so However, we can, so we, we can year, agree on that. We can we can disagree on our teams, but we can agree yep. on how great our fan bases are. So there you go. But I I, I want to say this year, my heart is with Detroit. You know, they, it's also yeah. it's. Yeah. Yep. I, I would love I would love to, I would love to see a Detroit Buffalo Super Super Bowl. Like two, two cities that whoever wins that city really deserves it, you know, have yep. fan base. Yep. Those, 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 fan, those fan bases in, 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 in different ways, but those fan bases have both suffered enough. So, yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, um, so is our country these last four years, but I think this is the year, Will. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, this pretty, is I'm rooting for that. I'm rooting for us. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I mean, because the because the political media isn't going to help us, and the guys in Davos, the rich and powerful, aren't going to help us. So we're on our own again. Um, and you know, every time we're on our own, Americans seem to rise to the occasion, and I think we will one more time. <laughs> but we, all of us have to encourage each other, as you are doing, to get involved, to stay involved, to realize how serious it is. There. And if we do that, you know what? We're going to show the world something amazing. Yeah, there are, there's more of us. We're we're the we're the new silent majority, and hopefully, hopefully by the end of this year, we won't be we will be silent no longer. Not so, so. silent, right? All yeah. right. Well, it's yeah. a great pleasure catching up as usual. Thank you for your uh, time. Uh, You're listening to the Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT eight twenty. Okay, that was a fascinating. Uh, first hour. Um, and I think we're in for a fascinating rest of the show, starting with Alex Morgan, who is back. He uh, joined us, I don't know, it's probably been a year. Um, he's the co-founder and president of the Progressive Turnout Project, which, Alex, you'll have to correct me on this, but I think it might be the biggest voter contact organization out there. Um, welcome back. Thank you for for having me back. I was thinking the same thing. The last time we talked, I think it was it was right before the 2022 election. So everyone was warning about that uh, red wave, and we were trying to anchor in some optimism and and important early vote data that was telling us otherwise. So uh, it's a little belated, but happy to be back and, and celebrate a little bit with you, and and look forward to the year ahead. So b- before we celebrate or look forward. I think it's worth, um, it's been a while, uh, just take some time and tell everybody about PTP, about the Progressive Turnout Project, of what it is, how it works, you know, and, and your areas of focus. 
Absolutely. Well, um, you mentioned I'm uh, one of the co-founders of PTP. Um, we started Progressive Turnout Project uh, back in 2015 because my co-founder and I met on a congressional race, uh, a hotly contested one that, you know, had gone back and forth several cycles between the Democrat and the Republican. We always came up, you know, one side or the other, somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 votes. And we uh, looked at each other, my co-founder and I, and we said, what are we going to do to change this dynamic where programs, you know, launch so late to mobilize, you know, our base and, and inconsistent voters. And if we could just figure out, you know, and, and sort through all the important stuff and get programs up and running a little bit earlier, we probably wouldn't be in this boat where, you know, it's kind of a, a coin flip at the very end. So, you know, we didn't necessarily set out to be the largest voter contact organization in the country, but but we are now. And I think it's because our mission of rallying Democrats to vote has really resonated uh, with our Democratic base that does go out and do a lot of door knocking, does make a lot of phone calls, send lots of uh, text messages in the final um, weeks of the campaign. And, and we know that we'd much rather and, and we know we're actually better when we get boots on the ground and we get out there talking with voters as opposed to just being, you know, out there with the, the TV ad war, which, you know, certainly has its place, but um, shouldn't be the only place our, our donor dollars go. So we've been operating since 2015. We've hired and trained more than 7,000 folks across the country to be part of our field teams during that time. And we've made uh, a little over 88 million voter contact attempts targeting specifically these inconsistent Democratic voters. So people People who we know when they go and vote, nine times out of ten, they're going to be voting for our candidates. The question is, these are these folks who, you know, we talk about, are they disillusioned? Do they think their vote matters? Or do they just need that last little bit of information that gives them the confidence that, yeah, you know, my, my vote it matters just as much as anybody else's, and I need to get out there. So um, we've had millions of those conversations over the years. And aside from the, the actual party, you know, itself, you know, which will add up all the stats from all the state parties and all the great volunteer that work that's done through them, we're the largest uh, outside group doing, doing this kind of work, um, and, and we're happy to do it. It's really, really so important. Um, the the, the Voter contact, you know, the door-to-door -door stuff that that I've known my whole life in a city like Chicago. Um, COVID changed things. And I'm wondering if there were lessons that you learned during COVID that apply even now, now that we're out of the pandemic, but that have changed the way you work. Absolutely. Um, there were a few important lessons that, that we learned. Um, number one was going into the, the COVID cycle. Um, we were really just focused on getting out and knocking on doors. And, you know, looking back, there were a lot of things that we did that uh, made sure we were overprepared for that. But of course, you know, at the time in 2020, things were so uncertain, right? And people were rightfully very cautious and, you know, uh, kind of pushed back and said, well, are the, do we really know that all the precautions that we're taking are enough? Uh, to make sure this is safe. You know, obviously, in retrospect, we can now say that absolutely we went above and beyond. But at the time, you know, we weren't so certain. And so we were stuck. Stuck is maybe not the right word, but we only had the one program that we were working with. And people were quite uncertain about that. And we've really diversified since then. So we don't just knock on doors. 
we're also recruiting um, community mobilizers in important states to, um, you know, remotely get trained and have really important conversations with their family, friends, and neighbors, people who are already in their contact list to, you know, they know how they want to uh, reach them, whether that's in person or via a text or via phone call or uh, an instant message. Um, they know how to get to those folks and we let them know, okay, here's our database. You uh, let us think up your contacts and we'll tell you which of your, your folks in your network you really need to talk with. Another program that we've run is our campaign fellows program, where we um, work with our endorsed candidates um, to put someone on their staff to do, you know, help them with their field program. So uh, we had more than 700 folks on um, congressional and legislative campaigns last cycle, and they were all um, independent of PTP's programs um, and were able to plug in and, and help however the campaign, you know, thought best was going to help them to win. So that helped diversify our programs quite a bit. And then something else that has made us really popular since 2020 um, that I never would have imagined, uh, but that we've also proven is really effective uh, is folks writing postcards, um, which has proven to be a really great opportunity for people in those big blue cities like Chicago, like New York, like San Francisco, who maybe want to get together with their friends and do something or do something from the comfort of their own home. But maybe they don't want to get on a phone bank. Maybe they don't want to get on a you know, in Chicago, a lot of folks have gotten on buses over the years to go to places like Wisconsin or Michigan. And, and there are certain uh, hardy folks like you and I who love knocking on doors who might get on a bus to go up to Milwaukee. Uh, but there's many more people who actually prefer to stay at home and find a, a different way to support from afar. And our postcard program has been proven to um, boost turnout among the recipients of them by about 1%, which can be a huge boon in some of these closest um, races um, that we're looking at in some of these battleground states. So that's another program that we've launched since the pandemic and we continue to sustain because we have a lot of people who have really enjoyed it and we know that it works. So uh, that's a big lesson for us has been in diversifying our programs um, and, and giving people options for how they want to plug in and help rally Democrats to vote. Uh, again, I, I, I'm just so impressed um, by, by what you're talking about, Alex. I, you know, that there are Americans aren't um, stupid, and and the great majority of Americans. Um, I, I also think we're not more divided than we've ever been. If you if you think about, gee whiz, we used to be like you couldn't drink from the same water fountain, or women weren't allowed half of the jobs in America. Today. The vast majority of Americans have come together on issues of, I don't know, common sense gun safety or abortion rights or climate change or uh, uh, being allowed to vote. You know, um, formerly disparate ideas, they've sort of formed a one of the biggest coalitions in the history of American politics now. But we're being told a lot by the media and and certainly by the Republicans, hey, you know what, we're coming for you. We got the big wave. You, you, you don't matter. We're going to roll right over you. And you're showing people that they're on ramps where they can just get involved, however they're comfortable getting involved. And nothing is more important because when they do, well, the, the red wave doesn't make it to the shore. That's right. Well, and Republicans have spent so much time 
demonizing the actual process of voting that they're they're turning off their own voters and uh, something that we're we're working on sort of tangentially here right now is this um, program we're we're open out in Florida where the Republican supermajority and Ron DeSantis just kicked all these folks um, off of automatic vote by mail, um, which Florida has had for the longest time. I mean, right. We, we think of places like Florida and Arizona as places, you know, people like to go to retire and we know older folks like to vote by mail. So they don't have to yep. leave the house if they're not able to, or if something comes up, they just kicked all these folks, you know, Democrats and Republicans who have been enrolled for years off of their vote by mail program. And so, you know, now you've got all these, uh, I would call them inconsistent Republican voters who, don't even trust trust you know their ability to go and cast a ballot because of the big lie. Um, so you know I, I know that some Republicans are trying to turn that around, but um, it, it's amazing what what they are doing with their own base. And we just got to keep reminding our folks that their vote matters, and we're going to continue fighting for all these different avenues for them to to cast ballots and of course get people re-enrolled in places like Florida where they're unfortunately getting uh, kicked off. Alex, your your organization is growing every election cycle. Your donors must be happy. I mean, they're, they're they seem convinced the method is working. I, I think you're getting uh, you, you financially. Your your looks like you're growing as well. Is that right? We are. Um, 2020, of course, was our, our biggest um, cycle, and it's hard to compare a midterm cycle like 2022 to a presidential cycle. Sure. Uh, yeah. But every cycle has been uh, bigger and better. We're um, eager to see what this cycle looks like. Obviously, when the stakes are high, um, you know, people come out of the woodwork to support you. I think it's it's been interesting to follow some of the polling and not that this polling really matters for the general election, but you see that folks have kind of tried to take a little bit of a break from politics. Right. And you might've seen, I think it was a CNN poll that said, you know, this significant number of Americans didn't believe, you know, that it was going to be Biden versus Trump again in 2024. Right. I'm kind of thinking that Iowa, you know, this earlier this week is a wake up call for folks. Uh, New Hampshire uh, this coming week um, may certainly be a wake up call if Trump uh, finishes on top there. And so I think people will start to um, wake up and realize that, yes, President Biden, like um, you know, most presidents before him is running for reelection. He's done an incredible job. Why wouldn't he run for reelection? And yes, the Republicans are crazy enough to nominate Donald Trump yet again uh, to be their candidate for president. So whether you like it or not, uh, it is going to be a rematch of 2020. And it's time to uh, tune in. It's time to mobilize and get back to work. So I do think 2024 is going to be another huge year for us because people, the people who are tuned in know that the stakes are high. Um, and I think as more people tune in, they're going to realize just how high the stakes are um, in this upcoming election. Uh, when we started, you talked about we could do a little bit of celebrating. And 
you know, Democrats don't like to celebrate. I mean, maybe we like to celebrate. No, but we don't. We, do don't. It well. <laughs> we sure don't do it very well. You know, we're hand ringers, I think, to the core. Um, so talk a little bit about the victories that you've had and, you know, just some of the stories that you've seen that, you know, remind people that we're actually winners out there. That's right. Um, nobody thought we were going to keep the United States Senate, right? Like that one was totally written off. Oh, maybe we, you know, people thought maybe we take back the House because of, or keep the House because of more fair redistricting. It ended up being the opposite, right? And we kept the Senate in some really tough statewide races. We picked up a, a big win in Pennsylvania with John Fetterman. Um, and that means that President Biden has been able to uh, nominate and the Senate approve even more um, federal judges, right, over the, the um, last year and a half here. And we don't even have to rely on the vice president to go in there and, and break too many ties anymore. Uh, we have an outright uh, majority in the United States Senate. So even though, you know, the Republicans in the House are playing games and trying to shut down the government, um, you have to remember all those critical um, executive and judicial nominations run through the Senate, and we still have that majority there. And that's why those races, right, continue to be so important, especially um, with issues like uh, abortion rights hanging in the balance um, in all of these courts across the country, you know, in addition to so much more that is, is moving through the federal docket. I will say the, the victories that I'm most proudest of from uh, the last cycle are these um, big legis well, they're not big, but they're big in terms of what they're able to do. The legislative majorities we've secured in uh, in Michigan and Minnesota, where we now have um, trifecta control with the Democratic governor, Democratic state Senate, um, Democratic state house. Um, they have been able to, we talk so much about federal, right? And it gets all the attention and it is, you know, so important as we know. But at the state level is where so much more governing that impacts the day to day lives of Americans really happens. Um, and if your state government is gridlocked, you're not going to see any progress in terms of how, you know, a lot of those federal dollars get dispersed or or how certain things are interpreted in your state. So the fact that Michigan was able to um break uh, Republican control um, for the first time since, I think, the 1980s. And in Minnesota, where we were back in in a real uh, driver's seat position for the first time in more than a decade, um, means that we're really able to advance a lot of the uh, progressive agenda that we've been talking about, um, especially when it comes to not just abortion rights, but talking about uh, the commitment to climate, right, and, and setting the direction for how the state's going to make its investments in local communities um, uh, across these states. Um, so, so really huge victories in these legislatures. Um, on top of that, we gained the state house in Pennsylvania. We just need to get the state Senate this cycle. We made some progress um, in Arizona, where, where that's uh, a little chaotic here and there. I think we'll make big Virginia. in New Hampshire Virginia, this coming Virginia. year. Virginia, yes, of course, the odd year. How could I forget about the yeah. the odd year? And and we took back the the uh, the house in Virginia. So uh, so much to celebrate. You know, as you pointed out, even more um, from the past uh, year and some change. And it really tees up 
uh, again, just are we going to continue on this path and and make more investments um, like we've seen in Michigan and Minnesota? We know I know I think you spoke with uh, Ben Wickler recently in Wisconsin. Those fair maps are going to uh, put Wisconsin in play for the first time in a long time at the legislative uh, and congressional level. Um, so I'm just really excited about what we have the opportunity to do in the year ahead um, with the the chance to really build on uh, these big victories we saw in 2022. I am so proud of my upper Midwest. Uh, we, We hardy folks here in the cold for what we've done, the fight that we're having in Wisconsin against unbelievable odds to finally uh, bring that state along. Um, but the governing progress in in, in uh, Minnesota, in Michigan, here in Illinois, just the, the, the things we've been able to do to address problems that we've had that are longstanding, but also to seize opportunities for the future for workers and for businesses alike. Um, for the environment, for young people, um, for criminal justice, uh, for gun safety. I mean, these states are really, you know, are, uh, they have a lot of power, as you know, um, power for good. And I think we're seeing it here, power for ill, as I think we're seeing in Texas and Florida, where, you know, they want to dictate to universities and ban dictionaries and outlaw being gay. I mean, just crazy stuff. In these states, we're seeing that sort of pent-up demand for progress moving America forward, and it's so exciting. And none of it would have happened if people didn't focus on the legislative races in those states, um, just the stuff that you're getting people to volunteer to do. It's, it's, it, uh, uh, there are no words for how important this is, Alex. Absolutely. Yeah, legislative campaigns, I mean, if you've ever volunteered for one, um, you know, they might have one full-time staffer. I mean, it is a real shoestring operation at the legislative level. And that's why, you know, uh, like I said, coming out of the pandemic, we said, well, where can we diversify the programmatic investments that we're making? And it really was a no-brainer. You know, when you see these legislative races that have one person, we said, well, we can donate a second person, can't we? You know, and we did this yep. on on 700 something races. And so, you know, in so many places, we've helped to double the capacity on these yep. legislative races and it's making a huge difference. So I would, I would encourage your listeners, you know, I, I know they're in uh, a lot in Illinois, but I know else, elsewhere as well, you know, look down mm-hmm. ballot. Who can you help down ballot? Because it'll have a reverse coattails effect, right? If you're helping a legislative candidate in Wisconsin, that's going to help President Biden too. So um, for for our um, more politically astute folks who tune into a show like this, uh, really encourage you to do that down ballot research and, and you know, in uh, so many ways, uh, multiply your impact. Yep. I mean, in this coming year, I'm excited about um, the begin, you know, the beginnings of an infrastructure in places like North Carolina, where, you know, now we actually have people running in legislative races all over the state for the first time in gosh knows how long. And, uh, um, you know, a new Democratic Party in that state that's got, um, you know, that's taken the lessons that, from Wisconsin and from Michigan, you know, to build in a different way. It's exciting. It's very exciting. I don't know. Have you talked with Anderson Clayton, the new chair down there? Yes, she's been on this show a couple of times. 
Wonderful, wonderful. And we have, um, we've got an advisory board at PTP that includes um, Representative um, uh, Ashton Clemens down there in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. She stepped up. She's the recruitment chair in the state house. And I love talking with her um, because she's just so excited. Like you said, they've got folks running in all these seats. It's really been a concerted effort to make sure they've got names on the ballot, uh, you know, in, in every district that they can. So it's been a real team effort there. And that's the sort of energy, like you said, I, I love seeing across the country. Yeah. And people who are listening, you got to know that, that no one expects that we will turn every red district blue. But what if what if having candidates run in these red districts meant that instead of it being a 90-10 vote, it's a 60-40 vote? 60-40 is still a pretty exactly. good shellacking we would take. But you know what a difference it makes in the state vote totals for president, for Senate, you know, in some of the congressional districts? It makes a huge difference. And this, I think, Alex, is your point about how bottom up truly makes a difference. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay, so um, the other side of turnout um, is burnout. And turnout and burnout are going to play outsized roles in this, you know, our country's future this year. How do you start working today and avoid having people get despondent, quit, burnout? I mean, with, like, how are you thinking about making this just exciting and fun and important and interesting and sticky so that people want to keep doing it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think to that point, I would say, you know, right now, uh, middle of winter for so many folks across the country. I, I mean, that cold snap last week, I think, touched uh, the vast majority of states in the country, right? Uh, it hasn't left we don't me. Have to expect to, uh, for sure, deep, deep in Chicago, uh, it's probably going to be uh, supposed to be an El Nino year, but uh, I don't think it's feeling like that in Chicago. Um, but, you know, unless there's an important deadline, you know, somewhere where you are, you know, you need to collect signatures to get on the ballot or, or there's something, you know, staring your, your candidate right in the face. Um, now is the time, I think, to um, just make sure we're, we're tuned in and, and following what's happening. Right. We don't want to take our eye off the ball. We don't want to know if there's something um, fishy happening, uh, for example, uh, and this could have been a good segue into the New York three special election. We don't need any George Santos like folks uh, slipping by, you know, so we can't stop paying attention to who's going on the ballot right now. But. We also, this is not the time to be going full force, right? We're not at the campaign office every Saturday or on, on weekdays. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the time, like I said, to be doing, you know, doing a little bit of your research as someone who's politically astute to be thinking about, you know, who do I want to help out? Um, if I'm going to make a contribution, right, which early dollars um, do make such a tremendous impact for campaign planning and thinking about programs and what people, you know, at all levels of the ticket are able to do. Well, who who is this really going to help? You know, if, if you're which most of us are pretty limited in terms of. Uh, what monetary contributions we're able to make, but keep an eye on, on what's going on and, and how these recruitment efforts in state life in states like North Carolina 
and others are, are starting to shape up and, and what races look like as they start to move through their primaries. Then I'd say, you know, once we get through the primaries and we know who our, our candidates are um, down the ballot, then let's start to plug in and and go to, you know, a, a campaign office kickoff mm-hmm. um, or an organizing meeting or something like that. And by then it, it should be much warmer. Um, hopefully some of those are, are barbecues or, or something fun uh, like that um, that can help us build a little bit of uh, energy and, and community and, and have fun. Um, and then I'd say as, as we get to the summer, you know, um, think about how we can plug in and do uh, voter registration. I mean, that's huge in the presidential election yeah, year. Yeah. Um, people who are on the rolls already, you know, they, they know an election's coming up. It's going to be unavoidable this year. Um, but, you know, how do we get young folks, people who have recently moved, um, you know, anyone else um, who may be um, moving during the summer, getting a new lease or something like that in, in your city, your community, uh, making sure voter registration is top of mind in the summer so that people don't miss those those fall deadlines when they finally um, come around. And then, of course, you know, as we get to Labor Day, that's when we get our, our foot on the gas. And I think we're really going to um, feel the stakes of this election. And if you aren't plugged in by then, um, we, we expect to see you out and about, um, you know, as we turn into the, the fall. That's not the time to be, that's when we don't want you burned out, right? Um, yep. Because that's when we do need to get out and talk with all of our, our registered Democrats or, or folks who lean Democratic to uh, make sure that they are signing up for the, the um, voting pathway that they choose. If they're going to sign yep. up to vote by mail, that's the time to do it. If they're going to early vote, you know, rules change a lot in, in a lot of these states. And so we want to make sure that they've got the most up-to-date information. In a place like North Carolina, they just now have finally, with a, unfortunately a Republican majority on their state Supreme Court, implemented uh, that voter ID law that we have been fighting for so long. And so yeah. people you know, do need to know in that state that, OK, now now you actually do need to bring um, your ID with you um, to, to make sure that you aren't hindered in casting that ballot. So um, just tune tune in right now. Follow along. Think about who you want to support. Do your research um, and, and hop in when you're ready, um, because once once you're in. We need you to stay in. Okay, Alex, we are just about out of time. We actually are out of time. But take a quick second and just tell people how to find you if they want to participate. Um, Absolutely. Um, we're online at turnoutpack. That's turnoutpac.org. Um Read more about us. If you're interested, if you're in a blue city and interested in something like postcards, um, you can sign up for that at turnoutpack.org slash postcards. Um, that'll be launching in, in the next couple months. We'll have some webinars so that folks can learn more about any specific program that we're, they're really interested in. Um, and really appreciate you, you having me on again. It was great to catch up. It was great to celebrate a little bit. Um, and hopefully um, I'll be back when we're, we're rocking and rolling a little later this year um, to tell folks uh, about how they can hop right in and plug in with us to rally Democrats to vote this fall. Thank you, Alex. Really appreciate it. And uh, uh, enjoy this respite before the storm. Take care. Of course. Stay warm. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody. We're going to take a quick break. And uh, uh, a voice you're very familiar with, Jeremy Young from Penn, is going to join us after the break because, unfortunately, he has more uh, grim news that we need to consider. 820. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, welcome back. 
Jeremy Young, uh, all of you must know by now, is the Freedom to Learn Program Director at PAN America. We've talked a lot about his work to fight book bans and gag orders in schools and libraries. And he's also leading uh, Penn's effort to protect higher education from uh, government censorship. And it is a it is a job that just won't go away. <laughs> Jeremy, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Edwin. So this year, there's a. I guess a shift in tactics from the censors, they've sort of. Um, been emboldened by their terrible whims, and now they seem to be moving from passing, you know, laws or policies that just sort of chill speech and thought to going after the governance structures, um, the accreditations and things, the institutional supports for uh, academic freedom, freedom of thought all over the place. It's 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 scarier, not less scarier than it was a year ago. Talk about what's going on. Well, it is scarier, but, you know, I actually think this has happened not because of their wins, but because of their losses. Uh, you know, there has been a lot of pushback, an increasing amount of pushback. Polls indicate that vast majorities of Americans, including majorities of Republicans, don't want to restrict what teachers can teach and certainly don't want the government doing it. Uh, and there's also been some uh, legal setbacks. Uh, the the, uh, the Stop Woke Act in Florida was uh, struck down for higher education by a federal judge that's been upheld by an appeals panel. Um, there is some movement, uh, even in the K-12 space now, for um, in, in a New Hampshire case for uh, th that the, those uh, educational gag orders to be struck down there as well. So what we've seen is a shift away from explicit censorship of teachers and professors, which is, of course, uh, what these courts are finding unconstitutional, and a shift instead to trying to undermine uh, university governance in the ways that protect academic freedom and free expression on campus. So that includes a few things, uh, laws that are aimed at regulating the curriculum. So the government is going to decide what can be a general education course, what majors and minors can be approved or continued at a university. Um, the, the goal, of course, is to do away with uh, you know, courses like gender studies or particular parts of teacher education uh, that they view as uh, containing these concepts they want to ban, rather than banning the ideas, they're just going to ban the entire major. Um, yeah, I think sociology doesn't exist in Texas now. So it's not sociology at, uh, itself that doesn't exist in Florida, but th there was a sociology course that was a general education course that has been removed from general education. And, of course, that guts the department. You know, those departments survive on uh, students being able to take their courses for general education. If only a major yep. uh, in sociology can take sociology courses, you're not going to have many sociology departments left. Uh, and, you know, another thing that we're, we're seeing is restrictions on um, outright bans on DEI offices and initiatives, um, which typically have been, you know, the, the right of a university community and, and leadership to determine how they're going to address issues of diversity and inclusion on campus. And instead, you have the government coming in and saying you can't have these, these offices, you can't have these initiatives. Um, we're seeing restrictions on accreditation bureaus because these nonpartisan independent auditors, essentially, that guarantee educational quality at universities, all of them have DEI standards. And those standards have been developed in collaboration with universities. But because accreditors want to uh, hold universities to their own DEI commitments, uh, there is this view that accreditors should just be done away with. And so the various laws aimed at undermining them. 
And the one that really uh, shocked me uh, even beyond those things in Florida last year, uh, Florida passed a law, SB 266, that included several of these kinds of bans, but also in, uh, gave political appointees the right to rewrite every university's mission statement in the state. Uh, so if universities want to say that, that diversity is a part of their mission, they're no longer able to say that because these, these uh, you know, lawmakers and their appointees can simply override it. And um, their mission statements in universities, um, these are not trivial. Their accreditation depends on patterns of evidence that they are um, uh, making progress to meeting their mission. So it's very important stuff. And very important indeed. You know, one of the, this is breaking news, uh, and I get to break it on your show, which is great. Um, but there is now a bill that has been introduced in Florida, seems to have legs, uh, that would ban any reference to diversity, equity, or inclusion in any course uh, taught in a teacher education program at a university. It would also ban any course that, quote, distorts historical events uh, from those programs. Um, and of course, there's no definitions given of these things, which means ultimately who's going to decide whether something promotes diversity or distorts events is going to be the, the state uh, Department of Higher of Education. So uh, the state government can now effectively ban any course in any teacher education program in the state. Uh, you know, that's that's just going to gut teacher education programs. You want to have teachers in Florida has the largest teacher shortage in the country. Uh, and now we're going to say that uh, the teacher education programs are going to have to close their doors or not be able to enroll students in classes because the government is just going to go through and ban courses in those departments. It's, it's absurd. It's absurd. It's repulsive. It's dangerous. Um, and it's expected. You recently wrote a piece that appeared in The Hill, which for those of you who aren't complete political nerds, is a publication for folks who are watching what goes on in the Capitol. I, I'm just going to read you one of your own paragraphs because I want to get your thoughts on it. You wrote, while there are very real problems on college campuses, many of which do stem from challenges with anti-Semitism, free speech, DEI offices, bad faith actors are using this as a pretext to promote a longstanding and largely unrelated political agenda that's hostile to higher education as a whole. I, I guess we could talk about some of the self-inflicted wounds, but I also you know, want to focus on who are the bad actors, hint, Chris Rufo, and he needs a better introduction to America, and what's their unrelated agenda? Um, you know, it's it's very it's become very clear when you listen to the, to the aftermath of these congressional hearings on anti-Semitism, you know, hearings in which the presidents uh, of Harvard uh, and, and Penn in particular, former presidents of Harvard and Penn performed all, terribly. Uh, there's been yep. a lot of, uh, you know, poor performance on this issue by universities. And there has been, uh, I would say, a crisis of anti-Semitism developing on campuses, things that really shocked me, given what I experienced as a faculty member just a few years ago. But where, where the tell really is, is when you start to see these lawmakers and these activists like Rufo. Rufo says, why did he go after Claudine Gay at Harvard? He says it wasn't about plagiarism. It wasn't about anti-Semitism. He says it was because he wants to dismantle DEI. Now, what does Claudine Gay have to do with DEI? She's a former DEI dean and a scholar of DEI. That's not, you know, none of those things are illegal. None of those things merit getting fired as a president of a university. 
Now we have university, uh, now we have Congress, uh, congressional committees launching investigations into DEI, more bills being proposed this year to ban DEI than to regulate anti-Semitism on campuses. Um, and so it's clear that really this all comes back to race and particular racial boogeymen that these bad faith actors are, are using this very serious crisis, not trying to solve it, not trying to make anti-Semitism, uh, you know, trying to change the culture on campus in ways that would really help or, or solve the problem, but instead uh, just using it as a pretext to go after the same DEI, CRT, discussions of race they've been attacking since 2021. Yeah, I mean, is our memory so short? We don't remember the CRT panic. And when that passed, then they have the DEI panic. And then that's going to pass, and they'll have another one. But all of them are the same panic, which is, oh, my God, there are black people in America, and, you know, they're free to make progress. I mean, I think that that in some cases that there's some truth to that. You know, that's the that's the that's what the panic is about. So we call it sometimes the equity backlash, uh, just this this unending, uh, you know, backlash, massive resistance against the environment in 2020 with the George Floyd protests and the popularity of the 1619 project uh, and the sense that there was going to be finally in this country a real racial reckoning with our past. Uh, and now there's just been unending waves of attacks on higher education in in response to it. And it's clear from the polls that these that, that what is being attacked is is popular stuff. You know, the idea of teaching the real history of slavery, teaching the real history of the Civil War, talking about ideas that themselves may not be popular. Critical race theory is certainly not a majority uh, worldview in the United States. But the, the free expression to be able to encounter those ideas in an environment of intellectual freedom and debate them openly, that's what's being challenged. That's deeply, deeply popular and, and challenging it is deeply unpopular. And yet they just won't quit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you said like reckoning with our past. It, it's such an interesting idea because we are definitely fighting over our past. I mean, the 1619 Project uh, uh, caused sort of an existential panic on the right. And, you know, they responded with the 1776 stuff, which was, I mean, I read it. It was appalling junk. Um, it was. Uh, fake history in, in every way. Um, but But they are looking for the power to to um, enforce in the minds of, of young people a particular view of history. And gosh, that's happened a lot in, in, throughout mankind's past by uh, authoritarians of all stripes. They're looking for the power to enforce a particular view of history. And they're also looking for the power to dismantle universities as a site of free expression and turn them into a propaganda mill for their particular Ideologies. I mean, Chris Rufo is open about this. He says that, you know, the uni public universities are, are, are paid for by the public and the taxpayers, and they have a right to determine what ideas are featured there. And, you know, I, I think that that's an interesting point, and I think it's a, a very dangerous point because, yes, public the, the taxpayers pay for a university, but what they're paying for is for a university to exist as a university, which means an environment of free inquiry and, op and open expression. Uh, you know, if you if the taxpayers pay for a ball field, 
or a playground, you know, everyone gets to use it, not just the popular kids. <laughs> if the taxpayers pay for a university, they're paying for a university. If, if the taxpayers, uh, you know, want something where only one set of ideas are expressed, that's not a university. That's a that that's a, an indoctrination factory, and that's what you know what he he and his friends are openly calling for here. Well, didn't didn't the chief librarian or somebody in Florida say no? You know, the purpose of public libraries is to deliver the state's message. Yeah, and that's not that's not the that might be the purpose of a private library. That might be the purpose of a of a you know a, of a public library in Russia or China uh, or you know other authoritarian states. It is not the purpose of a public library in the United States of America. I mean, this is this is basic patriotism people. I mean, if, if we, and we have to, leave, we have to frame it in these terms, you know, if um, to be an American means to believe in the freedom of speech. And if we are, are going to replace the freedom of speech, yes, there are concerns about cultures of censorship on campus. Those concerns are legitimate, but if we're going to, to replace free inquiry on campus with the official government suppression of, of speech and ideas, then we are doing something that is profoundly un-American and that is in line with the actions of the most authoritarian states around the world. This notion that um, it isn't just, uh, it goes beyond, and I'm, you, I'm sorry, I'm mumbling. When you, when you talk about parks, just the things that, you, that government owns, you know, these, the right seems to believe only in power. So we, we, it is a government entity. We control the government. Therefore, we control this entity and what it does. The government is owned by the library. The library is owned by the government. We control the government. The library is going to, going to push our propaganda. I think they would use every tool of government the same way. Just DeSantis did with his taxing authority to punish Disney. Um, once you start thinking that the government will use its powers, to to uh, push its agenda at the expense of other Americans, you have the most. Well, this is what I mean. It's total, hence the word totalitarian. It is an idea that's antithetical to limited government, to um, uh, some idea of a public uh, benefit, public good, public uh, spirit, um, and everything becomes about power and control. Yes, and I think I think what we're seeing also, Edwin, is a is a very narrow and blinkered understanding of what the interest of the government is, what the interest of society is. The interest of the government should be in creating an environment of intellectual freedom where free expression is welcome, where government agencies and institutions and universities in particular, educational institutions in particular, are, are sites of free expression, of, of open inquiry. That's how you, how you, you further innovation. Uh, that's how you get people to, to do research into the most interesting and important questions in our, in our society. That's how you educate the rising generation to be democratic citizens. And if we're going to say that the interest of the government is in suppressing ideas, in in censoring particular points of view, whether or not those are those points of view are popular, we have uh, developed a, an idea of government that is incompatible with, with democracy. I, I, I didn't talk for a moment there because I think that idea deserves the silence that follows it so that people can think about it. 
right? In this country, a government that's incompatible with democracy. Just like try and get your heads around people what that means, because that's that's terrifying. And we are seeing examples of it in state after state. Um, we're seeing counter examples in other states where things are moving in the other direction and and people's lives are actually improving. You're thinking about Minnesota or Michigan, uh, lots of states. But there are a handful where our brothers and sisters in those states are told they can't read a dictionary. I, I got it. I'm sorry. Or, I have to ask or you about Bill O'Reilly or, or Bill O'Reilly. Did you see that? Bill O'Reilly's book yes. about Dan. Uh, And his response was just just priceless. I mean, he says, you know, there was a problem. There were awful books being banned. But now that it's mine, it's gone too far. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Ever thus. But look, once you when when you say there are things that are objectionable in this book so we can ban it. why, Why? When do they ban the Internet? Right. Because, I mean, anything you find in a book, you can find online. What, what is that coming to? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I probably. I mean, I think that that's been a subtext all along. You know, certainly uh, there are there are interest in censoring, uh, you know, digital expression and censoring student access to to the internet. Um, you know, we, yes, we've seen we, we've seen some interest in that as well. Um, but there is something about books. You know, it, it just it confounds me the way that books become symbols of ideas that are uh, that, that people don't like and therefore they want to ban them. If you if you think a book is going to endanger your child, I think you you have a, a misunderstanding of what a book is or perhaps of what your child uh, will do with that book. I and mean, maybe if it falls on your child's head, that's about the only way a book is going to get your child in danger. Uh yeah, but I mean I think they have to Go after ebooks. They have to go after. I mean, they, they, you know, you can get the definition of any word, right, on online in about one second. I just the, right. the idea that they're going to somehow, with a straight face, say, you know, we're going to stack up our knowledge in a scriptorum like a monastery in thirteen ten, and and only the elites will have a chance to be, get uh, a liberal education and learn to critically think. And the rest of us are going to be trained to uh, buy into some propaganda and work in somebody's business. That really is the most stratified idea about society uh, in 500 years since the Enlightenment. I, I couldn't have said it better. I completely agree. Okay, so so that's the challenge. And people like uh, the governor of Florida and Christopher Rufo um, and the governor of Texas, they're they're all in on this. So what what's the fight against it look like? You've been you've been raising your hand and telling us this is something to worry about for several years. Right. And we've had some progress, but we have not we have not rid the country of this. Of, of this effort, it's only uh, gotten in some ways savvier and more dangerous, um, even as we've won some battles. What do we have to do? I mean, it, you, you're you're a you're a nonprofit, so maybe you can't say this. But is the only answer political? Do we just have to win some elections? I mean, I, that's how I see the world. But I'm hoping that's not the only answer. 
Well, in the op-ed I wrote in The Hill, I laid out a few uh, principles that I, I think both universities and supporters of the university should follow to, um, you know, to, to combat this new wave of censorship. Um, so the first uh, is that we have to recognize that there is a problem uh, with speech on campus, that there is um, you know, a, a le- a, a less of a culture of open dialogue on campus than there should be. Uh, you know, the, the anti-Semitism crisis on campus is really highlighting this, but this is an issue we've been concerned about for years. Uh, and really what the studies show is that the, the problems that happen on campus do not really involve faculty. They are student-on-student problems. Stu- students uh, from different backgrounds, different viewpoints, uh, don't really know how to have difficult conversations. They don't know how to treat one another with respect. It makes sense. We, we live in a polarized society. Uh, you know, these are these are 18 to 21 year olds coming onto a campus for, sometimes for the first time in, a, in an unstructured environment to interact with people who disagree with them. Uh, and those interactions don't always go well. So we need a, a recommitment of universities to a, a, a culture of free expression from orientation to graduation. Uh, you know, PEN America has a, a guide and a training program. Many other organizations do as well. Um, you know, that's that's the first step. Uh, the second step. Uh, is that we have to recognize we are coming at this, even even as we watch these attacks roll in, we have to recognize we're coming at this from a position of strength. Uh, the, 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 uh, what is taught in colleges, what is actually taught is broadly popular. Attacks on higher education from the government are broadly unpopular. Uh, and we have to, we have to recognize uh, you know, what our strongest messages are, which is to focus on you know, the promotion of free expression and the opposing government overreach on campus. Um, third is what we call uh, don't uh, don't do the censors work for them. Um, a lot of these laws are very vague. Uh, they are enforced not often not directly by the government, but instead by administrators chasing their tails to try to avoid even the appearance of violating the law, or by individual professors uh, just being unwilling to talk about race or gender at all because they're so scared. So. We have to make sure that we speak. That we don't break the law, but we, uh, you know, we don't censor ourselves from doing or saying something uh, unless we're sure that the law actually uh, bans it. Um, fourth, uh, and I think this is really significant for uh, listeners of, of your your show. Um, you know, we we have to raise the salience of the attacks on higher ed. Um, one of the things we talk about a lot is the intensity gap between supporters and opponents of higher ed. The majority of Americans support higher ed, but it's not their top issue. And the minority of Americans who oppose higher ed, it's all they can talk about. We hear them all the time, constantly raving about how terrible higher ed is. Um, so what we have to do is just tell everyone all the time what is going on. Just talk about educational gag orders, educational censorship until you're blue in the face. Talk to your friends and family, write letters to the editor, write op-eds, you know, make a lot of noise about this and help people recognize that this is a serious threat to democracy in the same way that election integrity is a serious threat or, uh, you know, some of the some of the bans on books are a serious threat. And finally, uh, what I call for in this op-ed is uh, for higher education to work uh, collectively as a sector to ra- to defend itself and to raise its profile as a sector. Um, if you think about it, higher edu- there's a lot of ads for colleges out there, but there's nobody out there saying higher education as a whole is valuable for society. And yet the attacks are not coming for the most part to ad- individual colleges, but they're aimed instead at the whole sector. So we call for uh, you know, higher ed to work together as it's never worked together before and really figure out a way 
to raise its own profile and fight against these attacks. So that's that's five real strategies that I think people can people and higher ed can pursue. Uh, and I think we have to do all of them. We have to run the table if we're going to beat this thing. Yep. I, I, as, as you can imagine, I fully support and agree with all of those. I would suggest one more because I think it's going to be hard to get people to have the same kind of intensity for higher ed as its enemies, even as as worthy uh, a cause as it is. But they ha- but but the same people who are attacking higher ed are doing other things that people already are feeling intense about. So remind them that these are the same guys who are banning abortions. They're the same. They're not just banning books. They're, they're banning abortions. The same guys who are fighting every restriction on guns. They're the same guys who would undo any of the environmental regulations we have and turn the country back over to the oil companies, right? There, there are already things that people where there is no intensity gap, and it turns out it's the same fight. So I would, I, I guess I would ask higher ed to make common cause with others who are fighting the same or fighting the same people, at least, if not the same fight. It's a really, really good point, and I couldn't agree more. Well, as always, it's really uh, it's important that you come on and, and tell us what's going on. It's great to get caught up again, Jeremy. I don't think I've talked to you since the new year. Happy New Year. I know it's going to be a busy one, um, and and I appreciate your continued willingness to come and share your work with uh, my listeners. Happy New Year to you as well, Edwin. Thanks for having me on. Bye. All right, everybody. That was uh, Jeremy Young, the Freedom to Learn Program Director at PEN America. Always uh, important, always important stuff. Gets to the core of who we are. We're going to take a break for the news. And uh, the New Republic's Michael Tomaski joins me when we come back. You don't want to miss that. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, everybody, welcome back. A little after three o'clock here in the upper Midwest. Um, And it's my great pleasure to be joined again by Michael Tomaski, who is the editor of The New Republic. As you know, he is an author, a journalist, a very um, important, uh, influential, progressive thinker. And it is, you know, our good fortune from time to time that he's willing to spend Saturday with us. Michael, welcome back. Well, it's so good to be here. Always a pleasure. So guess what today is? Uh, Let's see. It is, um, well, this is Inauguration Day. uh, Yes. Yes. It's right. one right? year out from what, what yeah. we're going to see on the steps of the U.S. Capitol, the, you know, inaugurating a new era in our democracy or ratifying its demise. Yeah, one or the other. So I, I want to ask you about this because everyone is always a media critic. I mean, you're in the business and everybody's always critical. But in this cycle, the critique has become louder and more detailed and angrier. And it's coming from some of the best journalists out there. For example, you. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, like this thing is going to happen in a year, and instead we're talking about the weather in Iowa or, you know, like yeah. something crazy. You wrote, I think, fabulously about the way the media has covered Donald Trump's legal woes. Would you talk a little about that? Yeah, well, 
you know, they're, um, uh, it's getting a lot of coverage, obviously. And if you watch cable news, if you watch MSNBC or CNN, it, it gets, uh, you know, it's you can't say that it's not covered, and you can't say that it's not covered critically. And yet somehow, uh, and I have trouble putting my finger on it exactly, yet somehow it's just, there's all, it's also true that just the more airtime that's devoted to Trump, Somehow uh, normalizes him. Um, even in a, even even critical co- coverage sometimes normalizes him because it just it, it takes him seriously or something like that. And it, and it's it, and it's uh, I, I, it's a conundrum. I don't know what what exactly what people should do about it. But you know, there's there's a larger problem of you know the mainstream versus the right wing media, which is a, which is a crisis. But you know. Well, let's let's, let's turn to that then, because you uh, you had a cover story recently that was spectacular uh, in the New Republic, and it was called Biden's Other Opponent, maybe about a guy named Rupert, and, and that yeah. was fascinating. We spent a little time telling people about that. Yeah, and this was not by me, actually. I edited it. Um, the, the writer was Nina Burley, a terrific uh, journalist who's done other terrific pieces for us, uh, but she reported on how um, I asked her to go, you know, find out um, uh, what Democrats and liberals thought Fox News was going to do this election year, uh, uh, because obviously I mean, Fox News was founded in 1996. It's always been incredibly partisan, and um, I mean, that's no secret, but it's gotten much more so in the age of Trump, uh, and just much more openly a, a Trump Republican propaganda network uh, than, it, than it was before. And um, I was curious, um, are Democrats ready for what's coming? Uh, and so she went and reported that. She talked to a lot of Democratic operatives, a lot of progressive activists and operatives, people who uh, spend time trying to get you know companies to boycott Fox and things like that. Uh, and uh, you know, she she there's a really interesting uh, division of opinion. Uh, there's a group of people who say, "Don't go on Fox. You should never go on Fox. It's a mugs game. You're going to lose." Uh, and there are other people who say, "Well, if you look at the numbers of who watches Fox, it's actually watched by a certain percentage of independents who might be persuadable." I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it, if they watch Fox, they may be registered as independents, but I don't know how persuadable people are hearing that sewage, you know, every day. Um, so I just think it's a, it's a really – I wouldn't go on it if I were a Democratic politician. But anyway, it, it is a great piece. She really dug down deep into it. Yeah, no, everybody – Go find it. Really important, worth your time. I, I have a question. I don't know if it's puerile um, or serious. I, is Fox the propaganda arm of, you know, the MAGA movement? Or, you know, or, or is the Republican Party the political wing of Fox? It's it's a good question, and I, I guess the answer is both. Um, but you know, it, it was founded to be well. It was founded to be a a conservative alternative to the you know so called hopelessly out of touch mainstream media. Uh, 
Um, but you know, look who look who ran it for its first however many years until he got bumped out. Roger Ailes, mm-hmm. he's the guy who elected Richard Nixon. Um, you know, has MSNBC or CNN ever put uh, you know Jim Carvel in charge? No, of course not. I mean, that would be a rough equivalent, right? Uh, you know, a prominent party operative. Um, no, of course not. And they never would, because there are certain boundaries that mainstream media observes that just aren't observed on Fox. Uh, so, of course, they put a Republican operative in charge of it from day one. And so that's what it was from day one. But but now, as I say, it's it's much more severe. And, you know, if you if people are thinking about a question like, and I think we may have discussed this the last time I was on, if people are looking at a question like, why Biden's not getting any credit for anything that's good in the economy. Uh, but part of it is part of it is reality. You know, part of it is inflation and the price of gas and, and the price of eggs. Um, uh, and we shouldn't deny that. But a big part of it is the way the media uh, talk about these things, and especially the right-wing media. We could have, Edwin, uh, uh, you know, 7% GDP growth, 2% unemployment, and 1% inflation, and a stock market going crazy, and Fox would find the bad. They would never say a single good thing about Biden's economy. Never, ever, ever. And, and the mainstream media isn't like that, but actually the business press within the mainstream media, which is kind of its own thing, its own subset of the mainstream media, is A, a little bit more conservative than the mainstream media, and B, kind of always kind of focused on, on bad news. You know, there's, 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 there's a good jobs report, but it could mean inflation. You know, there's a, there's a good inflation report, but it could mean a recession. You know, that's, that's just kind of what the business yeah, I'm very does. frustrated with that. And, and my business yeah. friends who read it all the time, I mean, right now, it is just indisputable. America has the strongest growth and the lowest inflation of any major economy in the world. Right? Yeah. Indisputable. Yes. It, yeah. But 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 we heard all last year, oh the the, the recession's coming. Never came. And now this right. year, oh well will we tame you know, inflation might be back. Um or, or some other nonsense. I mean I agree with you. We have our economic challenges, but I would lay these entirely on Republican policies um, and not anything else. There was good news just uh, yesterday, right? I mean, these there was there were reports came out about consumer confidence that were that were really good. Uh, that it's grown in the last two months at a rate higher than any two month stretch since 1991. I mean, that's a long time. So maybe a corner is being turned and, and, you know, maybe, maybe gas prices really do just have an inordinate weight in, in how these things are, 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 are interpreted by people. You know, gas, gas is down to, I paid, I just went today and paid 309 and, you know, that's, that's a price people can live with. But at any rate, there was some good news, but you know, don't look for it on Fox News or Newsmax or or or, or any of those propaganda outlets. Well, I, honestly, I, I'm so um, comforted by the the thought that reality, when it delivers good news, finally finds its way into 
people's hearts and minds that, you know what, the economy is better and consumer confidence is better. And consumer confidence isn't better because of anything that they see on Fox News or in the business press. It's just better because reality is better. And that that is, you know, when you think that one side is reality denying and that we're having a reaction that's reality affirming, that is that you've made my day. Yeah, I was I was delighted to see this yesterday, and so maybe maybe it does mean, uh, as as White House aides have been saying to reporters for a couple months, that you know people will catch up. You know, they'll, they'll it'll it'll take a little time, but they'll notice. Um, so let's let's hope that that's true. But but you know, uh, we do have still. A media crisis, and I wrote about this yesterday in my newsletter. You may not have seen it, but I just—I uh, mean, people should read my newsletter, of course. <laughs> but, but uh, I, you know, I just want to raise the issue that I discussed in there yesterday because it's really depressing and alarming, uh, which is the Sinclair purchase of the Baltimore Sun. Yeah. Um, you know, it's—it's, it's and, and you know. Broader picture, I mean, that the idea that that once really great newspaper and still pretty good newspaper, I mean, they won a Pulitzer in 2020. It wasn't that long ago. Um, but the idea that that really legendary newspaper is going to be a right wing rag in six months uh, is really depressing and terrifying. And these Sinclair people mean business. So the broader point that I made in this newsletter, which also posted on TNR.com as a column, so people can just go read it if they want. Um, I've watched, and I know we're about the same age, you and I have watched the right-wing media from its infancy to its adolescence. We've watched it grow and grow and grow and grow. And, you know, it used to be that, you know, the mainstream media was much bigger than the right-wing media. Now, it's not. Now I'd say the right-wing media is, if anything, bigger and more influential. And you and I have watched this happen over 30 years, mm-hmm. and it's just going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and, you know, is it hard to imagine, for example, Jeff Bezos, who doesn't really have any strong political commitments and maybe get, will get tired of losing the money, uh, putting the Washington Post up for sale and maybe selling it to somebody like David Smith and Sinclair? Don't. Yeah, or to Alden Capital. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Right. People should, we should not take these things for granted. This is, they're, they're not done until, (laughs) until they've, they've crushed our side as they see it. Right. Well, uh, this is the year that, that we're going to find out which of us does the crushing for sure, because. Yeah. Um, yeah. They want to do it, but we're going to mount a pretty strong defense. And, and part of that defense is a media defense. So I'm going to stay on the media for one more question for you. I know it's a little inside baseball, but it's worth talking about. You've managed to bring Greg Sargent to the New Republic. I think you should tell everybody who he is and why that's an important ad to a strong team. Yeah, thanks for thanks for mentioning it. Uh, Greg is uh, someone I've known for a long, long time. A, but B is uh, one of the most distinctive liberal columnists in the country. He's been at the Washington Post for 13 years. Um, there's, I guess, some stuff going on at the Washington Post that that you know. Uh, anyway, he took a buyout, and um, 
and I persuaded him to come over to the New Republic. And um, uh, you know, he's a, he's a great addition. He's a 13-year veteran of the Washington Post. He's a columnist. He's a bold liberal voice. Uh, one of the things that's most distinctive about Greg is that he also reports. Um, so it's not just his opinion. You're going to learn stuff from his reporting, from reading Greg Sargent. Uh, he has a big and very well-earned following on Twitter X, and um, uh, I, I'm just very thrilled to have him aboard, particularly for this year. And he's also going to be the host uh, as soon as we get it off the ground, which is going to be in the near future here, very near future. Uh, our daily podcast. It's going to be about a, just a 15-minute, very newsy blast of, you know, here's what's in the news today, and here's what's up on the New Republic site today, and Greg's going to be the host of that in addition to all his writing. So uh, I'm really pretty jazzed that uh, that he joined us. Yeah, Michael, I'm, I, I am too, and I'm really happy to know about the podcast you're planning that you know i mean the media world is changing and and you are right that you and i have watched what used to be the mainstream media become a little river instead of a mainstream while the right wing has gotten bigger and bigger but these other methods these other ways of reaching people are are, are inchoate but uh, we have to work on them and grow them um and the idea that you're you know embracing all these uh methods to reach uh, uh, interested Americans who want to know what's going on is, um, I think, part of the change, the evolution of media. Um, and, and you know, good ideas can find their way out. And, and uh, But you got to report yeah. them in the first place, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and yeah, look, we also have to... Um, as you said, we, we have to keep up with the times. We have a responsibility to do that. You know, in my heart of hearts, uh, I wish it were 1995 and the New Republic were a weekly magazine uh, that only had a couple of competitors like like it, like it was in those days. But but it isn't like that anymore. And uh, and we have to try different things. And, you know, we're we don't have a TikTok presence yet, but we're working on that. I don't want a TikTok mm-hmm. presence. I don't want a TikTok presence that just says, hey, we published this article because that won't be of interest to people. I want I want a TikTok presence that actually does stand a fighting chance of reaching, you know, 18 and 20 year old people yep. Uh, yep. who use the medium. And, and I don't think we do that just by telling them that, you know, we ran this article on the showdown in no. Congress. Um, so but but we're we're thinking about how best to do that and and you know we're doing this podcast and you know we're trying to think about video video can be expensive i don't know if we have the means right now to do that but but the point is we 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 understand that we we have to be a lot of different things these days i i just um I don't know if you know the folks at Courier Newsroom. It's a, but they have, they have. Oh yeah, they, I, I know, I know Tara. Yeah. Well, she's she's become. They now have one of the biggest TikTok presences. So there's some resources there. I think you can pick their brains on. It's they've been very successful yeah. in that. Okay, so turning from journalism for a minute. Yeah. I, you you had another piece that you know. I mean, sometimes you and maybe it's just because we're the same age. But we think alike a little bit. I mean, you had a piece that reminded progressives that the Republican Party used to have a brain. And I read that the same day that I had uh, just quoted 
Freud to describe MAGA, the MAGA movement, as a seething cauldron of expectation. That was Freud's yeah. description of the id. Then I read yeah. you said the Trump party used to have a super ego. <laughs> thought, <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> I guess the urge to psychoanalyze the GOP yeah. is pretty strong amongst us that are struggling to fathom what happened to it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we, we, we keep groping for explanations, don't we? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I talk about that because that was just, a, you know, a, an interesting look at the Republican Party and just reminding people it wasn't that long ago that it was a very different uh, organization. You know, it was. So when you and I were kids, um, it was a party that had moderates and liberals, even genuine liberals like Jacob Javits, the New York senator, but a lot of moderates like Senator John Hines and uh, Senator Scott of Pennsylvania and Senator Chuck you know, Percy from Illinois. Percy, yep. Percy, yep. Yeah, just uh, a whole bunch of them. Uh, governors, too. And uh, then the, the the religious right movement kind of infiltrated the party in the late 70s uh, and into the 80s. And, and Reagan won. And the same year Reagan won a bunch of very conservative by those days standards, probably not by our standards today, um, but a very bunch of very conservative um, uh, candidates uh, won Senate races and beat liberal Democrats, notably Dan Quayle beat Birch Bayh in Indiana. Uh, hard to believe Indiana had a quite liberal senator, but it did. Uh, and so, you know, this has happened. That's, those are the seeds of it. Um, but you know, it's basically, uh, to put it in, in one sentence, uh, most American political parties are amalgams of various different movements that have enough in common that they can unite under a party banner. But the Republican Party in recent years has been swallowed by one movement, the conservative movement, mm-hmm. and it's pushed out moderates and, and liberals. Now, you'll still hear CNN and even MSNBC refer to moderate Republicans on Capitol Hill, but that's just a very subjective term, you know, like by comparison to Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, but, but by comparison to people who were called moderate 30 years ago, no. Um, so it's it's really, um, it's, it's just... Um, yeah, and it's just in, and in all that time, and with people like Rush Limbaugh screaming about feminazis, and 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 then with Trump coming on the scene and just saying what other people wouldn't say, uh, but saying it out loud and 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 having people you know fawn over him, it's just become that just a just a big id machine. Yeah, really terrible. Hey, let me you you raised a really interesting point about political parties. And I wonder if this is true. America's almost by law a two-party nation. The two parties are, it's very hard because of the structure of our election laws to have anything else of a new party. So we have these two Correct. parties. And it's in the parties that a whole lot of uh, um, compromise that goes on between very different uh, 
interests in this country happen. They were big tents, right? And yeah, one was a right. little left of center, one was a little right of center. But I mean, it, and it's still evident in the Democratic Party in all the chaos in, you know, uh, Biden's first two years over what the Democrats would pass. You had Joe Manchin, Democrat, saying, yeah, you know, big part of my party is too liberal for me. We're at, yeah. And we ended up with a, with, with, a balance um, that, you know, the liberals didn't love, um, but it was a Democratic big tent and very powerful set of legislation that got passed. The Republican Party now feels like um, an ideological purist party, not a big tent party, more like a European um, uh, uh, parliamentary party, the kind that might work in a system where you got 12 of them, but not where, where, where they are. Half of the political parties is just one ideological pure party. It's not a big tent. So it and doesn't pretend to be. They expel people who don't think like them. So it's yeah. it, it's a different it, it doesn't help us in the structure of our nation um, find a way to build legislation or policies that will have the support of broad majorities. Yeah. And uh uh, you're exactly right, and, and an important point for people to understand here, I think, is that it's not just uh, that uh, that unwillingness to compromise is not just at the level of elected officials. It certainly is at that level, and part of it is just fear. They're terrified of a primary, because in every congressional Republican congressional district in this country, as right-wing as the person might be, I can guarantee you there are four or five people who are to that person's right and gunning to run for that seat and just waiting for the person to approve a Biden judge or cut a deal with the Democrats on border security. And because they're going to hit them, you know, it may be a state legislator. It may be a local, you know, lumber magnate, uh, but they're just waiting for them to make that one vote. And they're going to hit him with a million-dollar onslaught, you know, rhino, you know, yep. blah, 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 this and that. Uh, so there's that. But I also want to make this point. Uh, it's at the level of the base, too. And, uh, you know, you can see this. And I've looked at these surveys, and I'm sure you have. And this was first, first came to my attention in a book I read called Asymmetric Politics. It's about a decade old now. Um, but this is all still true. Grossman and uh, I forget who his co-author was. Um, anyway, they polled Democrats and Republicans, rank and file, Democrats and Republicans, first of all, on how conservative or how liberal are you. And, and Republicans as a group are much more conservative than Democrats are liberal. Uh, Democrats rank and file, are more mixed. So that's A. But B, and this was the instructive part, would you rather elect people who uh, compromise with the other side or stay true to your, our party's principles? Democrats tended to say we'd rather elect people who compromise, and Republicans tended to say we'd rather elect people who stay firm. Um, and so there you have it. So it's top to bottom. It's, it's not just that, you know, I take some comfort in knowing that as they have become more ideologically united and pure um, and strident, the party has also shrunk. 
Um, you know, and I think that's why they are bending the levers of the democracy to stay in power. But I, I, I think that they've lost their majorities as they keep finding out every election. I mean, just recently in Florida, they lost a seat. So, yeah, yeah. Well, it has shrunk, and um, uh, you know, they're uh, they've lost, as we know. Democrats have won seven of the last eight, eight of the last nine presidential elections in terms of popular yep. vote. Uh, the only one the Republicans won was Bush in two thousand four, and that wasn't even really by all that much. Uh, but the Democrats have won every other one. Um, yet, of course. Uh, the Republicans uh, have managed to arrange things such that, you know, they can become uh, a majoritarian minority, if, if we may put it yes. that way. Yeah. You know, so, so the yep. way they gerrymander, you know, uh, districts, uh, they yep. control more state, state legislatures than Democrats do. And that's a real problem that Democrats need to look at um, because, you know, increasingly Democratic and liberal voters are grouped into cities, near in suburbs and university towns. And that's it, which leaves two thirds of the country where there aren't Democrats. Um, yeah, and, but they're uh, also not that many yeah. people. I mean, we, we the, yeah, I spent a lot right. of time on that state stuff. And, you know, here up in the upper Midwest, where we took yeah. back Michigan, where M- M- Minnesota's doing great things, uh, Illinois is doing fine, I mean, really improving on some old standing problems. And, Michael, I think we are going after and going to win back uh, Democratic control in the most gerrymandered state in the country, Wisconsin, in this next year. Yeah. It's a wow. miracle of hard work. That would be great. That would be great. Yeah. I mean, you know, public opinion tends to support Democratic positions, uh, you know, liberal-ish mm-hmm. positions uh, on a lot of different things. Um, but, um, you know, that's not always what decides things. But, um, yeah, the Wisconsin, just think- the Wisconsin picture is very important. And, and what a very great important. leader the Democrats have there in Ben Wickler. He's, he's ben, done such yep. a good job. Yeah. Yep, he has. Um, we, we um, you pointed out, you know, the string of Democratic popular vote victories in the presidential election, and but we of course don't always get the White House because of the uh, uh, way the Electoral College works. Um, I, I don't remember, or maybe I'm missing something, but I don't remember when either the Supreme Court or the Electoral College. Um, written in the Constitution says Americans vote doesn't matter. We're going to give the uh, uh, Republicans the White House. I don't remember storming the Capitol or threatening a civil war or any of that stuff. And now the Republicans are saying, like, if Donald, if, if the 14th Amendment actually is, you know, it, it keeps him off the ballot, um, we're going to burn the country down. Seriously, yeah. the rule yeah. of law has got to matter to people first and foremost. Um, if they want to play, I have no patience well, for that. I know, no, but it doesn't. Power matters, yeah. and and you know, I mean, you started our discussion by mentioning that you know a year from now somebody will be on the steps of the Capitol. Ah, uh, yeah, I hope. You know, if Joe Biden wins and is sworn is sworn in as president, would it be wise to be out there in the open air on the steps of the Capitol? Surrounded by 10 million of us, a bigger crowd yeah. than Donald Trump can ever imagine to cheer and keep him safe. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, well, Michael, thank you as always. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, you just bring such judgment and experience uh, for all of my listeners. I, I'm always appreciative that we get this time. And I don't think we've talked this year. So happy new year. Yeah. And to you and um, you know, you do a great job. I'll, I'll come on anytime. Thank you. All right, everybody. Uh, Michael Tomaski, and you guys should look at the new Republic. Really interesting stuff. Um, we're going to take a quick break. And of course I will take your calls when we come back. Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. Let's get right to it, Jim. I hope you had a good week. What's on your mind? Hi, uh, Edwin. I don't, I, I don't have a DNA link to John Maynard Keynes, but I can recognize an economy that's on the brink of really exploding, really thriving. You have the consumer, Exhibit A, the consumer confidence number, Friday from the University of Michigan. The stock market's thriving, unemployment's down. And do we really want to turn this over to Lou Dobbs and company and the pillow guys? And, you know, I mean, seriously. I mean, this this team that, that Biden has put in place to shepherd this economy out of a pandemic, and we are the number one country in the world as far as our economy is thriving, and prices are coming down. We Even though the prices were high, they were still lower than most of the countries in Europe. And I hope that the, the Republicans, before they throw their vote away and vote for Trump, Realize that the economy is important to their children and in getting uh, loan forgiveness for college loans and so on. What do you think, Edwin, about the economy? I think it's 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 better than I can ever in recent decades. Go ahead, Edwin. I, what do you uh, think? Amazing, right? It's, it's amazing the accomplishments um, coming out of COVID. We've done better than any country, uh, any major economy in the world. Um, it's uh, and the challenges we still face are the inequities that are put there by policies that just favored the 1% over every single other person. Um, and the Biden administration, through enforcement of, of um, uh, you know, uh, antitrust laws for the first time in a generation, um, uh, in support of unions and other things, is beginning to right that ship as well, which would put us in a period of, you know, uh, of stability like we haven't seen since in 40 years, really. Um, so I, I, I agree with you. It's very hard to turn something. You can make the economy make more money, and we're certainly doing that. But to make it make more money in a way that is broadly uh, contributing to American po- prosperity is much harder. And the Republicans don't even try. They want that all that money siphoned up to fewer people. Um, it's easier for them. And, they, you know, they, don't, they, they can sip on their tea in Davos or whatever they're drinking and say, we don't care if Trump's president because, you know what, he'll protect our companies. So I couldn't agree with you. Right. right. And the other one real quick is we have to address the Supreme Court at some point. We cannot let it uh, be the politicians over us. And no matter how many people are in favor of this or in referendums and in favor of whatever the case may be, we cannot allow them to dictate their uh, narrow policies to the to 320 million Americans. It's the right anyway. word, Jim. Absolutely the right yeah. word, dictate. This Supreme Court yeah. has taken on more power than anybody else. And... Um, 
uh, Congress should shut them down, should just say, you know what? You can't just say everything you don't like that we do is somehow invalid. I mean, this goes all the way back to Marbury versus Madison, but balance is important. And if the Supreme Court says there's no balance, we are going to dictate to Congress what policies we think America should have, not because of the Constitution, because they don't really pay. They're not really, you know, they're just doing it because like yesterday's rulings don't matter. They're not using legal principles they're using political ones. If they want to make that court about politics, you know what? we got to stop them. Totally agree. What about the Packers in Frisco? What are you pulling for there? I'm torn. I, you know what? I'm I'm, I'm all in for Detroit. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. You got to pull for yeah. Detroit after 30 years of torture. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. have a great weekend, Edwin. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you. Okay, 773-763-9278. I'm taking your calls. Paul, welcome back. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah uh, just tagging along with uh, what, what Jim said. Um, well, first of all, yes, the court. And if they're going to overturn the, you know, the precedent set in the, uh, the Chevron doctrine, the Chevron rule, uh, Congress created the, led to the regulatory agencies. Congress, the Cong- I think the Constitution does indicate that Congress, this, this is a, there are other powers assigned in the Constitution and the court ought, keep their damn hands off of it. Um, as for the economy, I really love Jim's point. But this is something that people have to realize. And the the Biden economy, people, it's, they're just being told that it's bad. They're being told to feel, feel like the economy is bad because Donald Trump, let's look at it this way. In 2016, uh, the 500 counties that Hillary Clinton won across America accounted for not only a majority of people, uh, but also 64% of the nation's economic productivity. The 2,600 counties that Donald Trump won in 2016 accounted for a minority of the people and only 36% of the economic productivity of the, of the nation. Well, by 2020, <laughs> are you better off now than you were four years ago? Well, it turns out in 2020, the same 500 counties that Joe Biden won accounted for 68 percent of the economic productivity, while the same 2,600 counties that Trump won accounted for now only 32 percent. So uh, Trump's economy was it, the whole idea that the Trump economy was great. No, it contracted. I'm not saying that uh, the blue counties actually produced more. No, the economy contracted to such a degree but it contracted more in the Trump in the Trump uh, in the Trump areas. More yeah. people and another one. Sixty-eight out of the top seventy counties where poor people enrolled in Medicaid are went for Donald Trump. Trump is the king of the poor. He's the king of the no, of the no productivity, and he's the king. Well, the ones of who the are ones takers, not makers. Just to turn exactly. it around. That's I, right. I got something else I want your comment on. Hold, hold your thought a minute. Yeah. I'm going to, just because I want your blood pressure to go up, not mine, I'd like you to, I'm going to read you an email that was just forwarded to me, and I'd like your response. Ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The world was peaceful under Mr. Trump. Israel was not being attacked under Mr. Trump. Peace accords were being signed by former enemies. Putin had not attacked Ukraine, and he had, as, as he had with Mr. Obama and Mr. Biden. 
Afghanistan was under U.S. control, and we had not surrendered $85 billion in high-tech equipment as under Trump, as Biden did when he abandoned Kabul. Kabul. Interest rates and inflation were lower under Trump. A dozen eggs cost $5, and, that, uh, and gas was about two. Unemployment among minority groups was low under Trump. Chicago didn't need tent cities for migrants when Trump was in office. Institutions of government were not weaponized against political opponents like in some third world countries. In short, regular people like me were better off with under Mr. Trump than under Mr. Biden. Okay. I'd like you rather than me to respond to that. No, regular people like you weren't better off under Trump than they were under Biden. I'm sorry, buddy, whoever you are. But um, to, to create, I just told you that uh, the, you, you may not feel like the economy is better, but the president can only go by the data. And the data of growth, uh, inflation, by the way, is, I mean, this is what I, I get into these conversations with right wingers all the time. And I say, what is inflation? It's too many dollars chasing too few goods if it's market inflation. It's not currency inflation. This is market inflation. So, obviously, we have a lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. And if we've had growth that's 5.2% in the third quarter, I'm waiting for the fourth quarter numbers. I'm really anxious to, to uh, get those. We'll get it at the end of the month. But that means people have money. And if the, if the, if the growth is at third quarter, 5.2%, then I think it's not so much inflation. I think it's a lot of gouging. There's a lot of profiteering going on. Yep. A lot of profiteering. Yep. Otherwise, because the inflation is not good for the or for the sellers either, because that means they don't have any products to sell. That means they can't grow. If, it, if we're growing at 5.2% quarterly rate, somebody is moving some goods. Yep. Somebody has yep. money to buy. And by the way, inflation is under 3%. They're saying we still need to get the target. How did target inflation get to be, oh, it has to be 2%? And here's the other thing. I, I, I don't yeah, have much regard for Jerome story. Powell. I, yeah. why, why is Joe, right, well, Jerome Powell, why was he cutting interest rates? If the economy was so great under Trump, why was he cutting interest rates to practically zero? Yeah. Good but, point. I mean, Good what point. does that mean? No, Donald, here's, what, here's what it was, Edwin. Donald Trump's economy had one quarter of 3.1% growth. Everything else, which I'm sure this bugged the crap out of him, everything else tracked right about the same as Obama's second term. Not quite as good. Not quite yeah. as good because Obama in 20, when that, that quarter, second quarter, 2019, first it was, it was an estimated 4.1%. It was, it was adjusted to 3.1%. And I remember the media going, it's the highest since, Second quarter 2015, when Obama had 4.2%. Well, yeah, that's right. But the rest of, uh, because Trump, this was the quarter where Trump put the, uh, the, the tariffs on, and then the economy fell out of bed. Uh, third quarter 2019, 1.9%. Fourth quarter 2019, 2.1%. And then COVID hit, and the economy contracted by 31%. So nobody, no emailer, you're not better off. You were not better off nope. under Donald Trump. You were told that you were better. Donald Trump told you that you were better off, but you weren't. Yeah. The economy. And his foreign policy am- analysis is just as daft. I mean, and then yeah, we don't yeah. we don't I mean, need to spend the time the on it now, care. but it's just as daft. Yeah, and, crazy. and by the way, he's he's also my blood. Now you got my blood pressure. No. Uh, I see. He's also <laughs> he's also just picking all kinds of things that uh, you know have nothing to do with. Uh, so Israel and Gaza were not at war. Well, you know what? The one thing I would tell this guy is that under Joe Biden, 
the sun has come up in the morning a record time every day. The, the sun has come <laughs> up on a record. It's, it's a record every day under Joe Biden. The sun has come up. Yeah. It is, yeah. As a matter of fact, today, the sun has come up more times than ever before in history under Joe Biden. So what kind of stupid... <laughs> I know, people. crazy. Well, see, I wanted you to have to deal with that, not me, and I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, I can. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I got a list of people. I'm, I'm, I'm going to run right. to get the rest of them, but thank you. Thank you, okay. Paul. Take care. All right, Nancy, hello there. Hi, Edwin. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm good partly because uh, Paul got his blood pressure up and I didn't have to. Well, you got my blood pressure up, too. First of all, I so much appreciate your show. You're the only one, the only one that has ever said, and every Democrat should be saying this, because I don't blame we the people. I blame the politicians. The Democratic politicians still don't know how to fight, but they should be saying every single second, and they don't know how to beat a dead horse the way the cons do. They should be saying every single second, why is this illegitimate ex-president uh, getting more press than the present real president who's fighting for us. You period. That's crazy, period isn't us, it? By the way. Yeah. It is so insane. And your four guests today proved every one of the, they all four of them supported my argument, which I'm going to say now, and I'm sure you're going to uh, disagree with, but. Um, I am in despair. You know how they're always saying, oh, despair is not an option? Well, I'm saying BS because uh, I am in despair. Why? Because the two-party system does not support democracy. It destroys it. We don't have democracy in this country. You can't have democracy when the minority rules, which it does. You can't have democracy when we don't have a free press. You were talking about that today. There's too many, you know, other countries got rid of, uh, who's the guy that, the old guy that owns uh, phone news? Um, yeah, anyway, Rupert. Australia kicked him out. Yeah, they kicked him out. They said, no, you're not going to do that to us. And a couple other countries, Europe, I think, got rid of him too. But here we are, you know, with our so-called free press and free everything. No, the the majority is not getting their word out. And it's because Democrats still don't know how to fight back. We don't have enough progressives because they didn't listen to the progressives forever. They've been putting down Bernie Sanders forever. If he would have run against Trump, we would have never seen Trump desecrate our White House. Never. And the, the corporate Democrats are the ones who don't fight the cons. And that's why the cons have been in control, controlling the narrative for the last 40 years. We didn't prosecute Nixon, and it went downhill from there. Reagan got in illegitimately. Nixon got in breaking the law, you know, and go on and on. And uh, W was not elected the first time. He was selected by the not-so-Supreme Court. So... Please, Edwin, talk me down because I'm getting more frustrated as the days go on. And by the way, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you your facts are incorrect. Um, uh, 
uh, although I'm not sure Bernie Sanders would have outperformed Hillary. She did a remarkable job and won, you know, and then won more votes than anybody had ever won at that moment. Um, uh, didn't right. run a perfect yeah, and, campaign, and he for was sure. Blocked. He was blocked um, by but, the Democrats. Yeah, but he didn't have a, he, he also, the Democrat, well, it's an old story. I don't want to relitigate that one, but, um, right. okay. uh, uh, we, we, for Tuesday though. Let's remember we, that. Yeah. 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 The, 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 the parties, it's very hard to come up with a good nominating process and the parties don't have it down yet. I think we've improved on the Democratic side. The Republicans don't bother. Um, but, but your notion of, of, uh, where we are in the media and in, uh, Republican control of places is true, although they don't control everything. I mean, we passed when Nancy Pelosi was uh, had a thin read of a majority in the House and we had a tied United States Senate. We passed unbelievably important legislation that a Democratic administration is now carrying out for the betterment of Americans all over the country. That's why the economy is yes, better. And That's how why many wages. know that. Are, well, I, I, wait, wait, I'm going to get to that in a minute, but, but, it, but okay. they're going to feel reality. And the reason consumer confidence is up, after all, is not because of what anybody's hearing on the news, because you're right. You know, the few, the, the, I, I have this radio show. For every person like me and a radio show like this, there are like 50 right-wing radio shows out there saying yep, something else. I know that. So totally agree with that. And yet reality matters. Like people, consumer confidence is up despite being told by Fox that everything is terrible because, you know, reality right. matters. And when you are working hard as a president to make reality better for people, you know what? Sometimes it shows and it's showing. And that, so, so, so I agree with you, you know, Republicans are, are less diverse in, and I don't just mean, you know, the color of the party members. Well, I mean, another in point of we view. Need more than two parties, which I know is never going to happen in my lifetime. But yeah. we need more than two parties because the Democrats are so, you know, they're all inclusive. But that also means we have a lot of opinions and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, ideas and stuff. And we're not going to be able to unite the way, you know, they lockstep, the way the cons lockstep and, I, you know, stick together. It, no yeah, what. you say lockstep, you might as well say goose step. Right. But, yes, it, but that's what I meant. Thank you. Yeah. Right. But but it doesn't matter. Like we have won the last few elections. We're winning. We are winning. They, I wouldn't want to be them. The public doesn't support their views. The public hates that they are trying to force down our throats things that they know the majority of Americans don't want. Um, we're not going to throw our democracy away on these on these guys. We the idea that they think that elevating racism as a to, to make it the, uh, like the heart of a campaign. Oh my God, it's so disgusting. And and Americans are just not going back that way. We aren't, no matter what I know, they tell but us. The problem is the the system is broken, and they're not willing to fix it. I have been. No, we got to fix it over their are. objections, and we can't fix it. We we have to win in order to fix it. Like we're like uh, right, the, the fix is the two party system allows one person to block everything. Well, okay. I, that's, that's that's not, not so right. the, that's not really the two party system. That is uh, the way that the filibuster works. And that is that. Uh, I totally agree with you. What about the, the speaker? He can bring to the floor what he wants to bring. To, one person. I don't care what party you belong to. One person shouldn't have that much control. 
I also agree with you about that. But by the way, notice that that, that what's happening, even with these crazy Republicans, they threw out Kevin McCarthy because he brought something to the floor that the Republicans couldn't pass. And we just passed a CR, continuing resolution that kept the government open. Joe Biden signed it, I think, today, maybe yesterday. Um, And that passed, again, with more Democratic votes in the House than Republican votes. So they have the reality, reality, reality is is intervening on our side. And boy, I like to have reality on my side. These guys with their fantasies and their lies, they can't make it work in real life. They need the Democratic votes. So even even this most conservative speaker in the history of the U.S. House, this guy who sneaks away to Mar-a-Lago to have Donald Trump tell him what to do, he has to bring up a bill that he can only pass with Democratic votes. Imagine what that feels like. And so I don't good. feel too bad. My, we have a huge, difficult no. fight in front of us this year, but we're going to win. Yes, we do. But here's the problem. We don't have equal representation. I have been voting for 50 years, and they've been telling me from day one, I voted before you could be 18 to vote. That's how old I am. But anyway, uh, they've been preaching the same thing for how many years, and nothing's changed. I'm talking about the big things. We still have the filibuster. They told me we have to get rid of that. We still have the electoral college. They told me we have to get rid of that. We still have um, more representation for Montana with more cows than people than we do for California with 40 million people. That is not right. And nothing's going to change. The fight won't get easier until we do have changes in our government. And we haven't had any major changes in our government in forever. Uh, Nancy, I, okay, so you're raising a really powerful point about changing the Constitution. And a really smart man, I asked him, uh, um, former Senator Russ Feingold, who, who runs the American Constitution Society, we were having a conversation yeah, about, like, what would you change if you could change one thing in the Constitution? And I was, like, thinking about uh, the way the Senate works or the Electoral College. And he said, nope. Right. And he was, of course, right. He said, you have to change Article 5, which is how you amend the Constitution, because it is it is uh-huh. really right. So, so we yeah. so we, we are, there are people thinking about how we have to how we can make our government more responsive. I mean, I, I think our Constitution is brilliant and a very, very um um, stabilizing force in the country, but it needs some updating. And the other side yeah. wants to like write all kinds of terrible things into it. So I'm kind of grateful that it's difficult to change. Um, but we have right. to we have to improve the way we do it. And that is a really because important point. I'm, I'm glad you raised it. Right. But because that's what scares me. If we do open that door, the crazies are going to go through it. And that's what scares me. Yeah, that's me. why we've been careful about it so far. Um Right, right. Right. But you know what? Let's just focus on winning this next election so that we can um, limit the damage they can do and we can keep moving the country forward as we are. Anyway, I I think I'm. uh, I know. But one more thing. Trump is not going to win. I know that. But the problem is. They have allowed the cancer to spread already. They don't need Trump anymore. He's going to disappear. The poison is still there. And the cancer was never removed. It should have never been allowed to spread in the first place. But they handled that wrong, too. 
Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's just the way it's nothing, li- nothing like losing a bunch of times to get them to change their tune, you know, and they keep right. losing and right. they're going to keep losing. But, but only because we are going to keep working. Hey, thank well, you for thank calling. You, but you, you, you you've you've run me um, out of time. So I don't think I'm going to get to the other callers. So listen, everybody, uh, thank you for calling and thank you for your patience. Try again next next week. I'll be back. Um, look, please remember. This is January 20th. We are a year away from swearing in our next president. And it like, like so important, right? You heard from people today about how you can get involved, things you can do, you know, from the comfort of your own home to being out and being a candidate. They're just this is an all hands on deck moment. No room to be a spectator. No room. We just all of us have to do our share, but you don't have to do it alone. There are plenty of groups out there. It's actually fun. We can get out there. We can be organized together. Um, we can have fun doing it and save the country while we're at it. Anyway, uh, I, I wish you guys a, a good week. I hope you stay warm if you're up here with me in the cold. And I will see you again next week. Thanks so much for being on this journey with me. Oh, 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 oh,